You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. be like a fist away from the mic so like right up against the pop screen yeah pop yeah pop pop speaking of pop what what uh do you drink the white claw on the regular i do you like legitimately like it yeah dude that's something that's like really hilarious about the white claw phenomenon is like it started out as something that like like sorority girls drank you know, like like party girls, like party chicks. It started out as something like that, and that's kind of the way they marketed it. And I think what like brands have started doing is really smart is they take stuff and they market it to they market it to mass culture, and then they almost I don't know if they do it deliberately, like I don't know if they have people that go on and plant it, but then they have like People from the counterculture, from like the rock world, like kind of the the sneering, sarcastic side, like side of the counterculture, they go on and produce a bunch of memes and a bunch of jokes and make fun of it so that it becomes ironic to drink it. And then people drink it ironically and end up enjoying it. It's really brilliant. Like the white the white claw phenomenon is is pretty brilliant. Yeah, I think uh Getting people to hate it made it more popular. That's what happens. Like, I think they saw that they're like, man, you know what people really like to do is hate things. So let's set up a scenario where people will hate it and then try it ironically, and then it'll be twice as popular. It's pretty smart. Yeah, I only went for it because it has two grams of carbs. <laughs> I, stu- I stumbled upon it. Beer makes me bloated, and I'm looking for like a. Uh, Something to go. It makes your I'm, face puffy. <laughs> well, I'm a liquor guy, and this is yeah. I got to skip the sugar, man. That's great. You get you get like so. You didn't even get swayed by, like you're not drinking it to be ironic or funny. Like you legitimately got it because of the carb count in it. Oh yeah, I've been drinking it since the start. I didn't even know <laughs> it was like a big thing, dude. Until... Right out the gate, you're like, that seems amazing. Yeah. What a wonderful product. Welcome to episode seventy eight. Of the motherfucking podcast. I'm Aaron Howell. This is, of course, the official podcast of the International Power Rock Combo, Motherfucking Ruckus, from Denver and Chicago, respectively. Uh, Yeah, you're listening to the sound of excellence in the form of White Claw, brought to you by the the benevolent, sweet, grateful, uh, conscious minds at, at White Claw. Hopefully the future official sponsor of Love Stallion. Yeah, yeah. And, and that brings <laughs> that brings us to introducing my guest today. I'm flying solo. Gordo's on vacation and um, Ethan Cotel couldn't be in here to produce today. He's uh, He's got another thing going on. So I'm sitting down one-on-one with my dude Aaron Hart from the band Love Stallion. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, it's good man. to have you. Thanks Great for coming to, on. Great to be here. Have you listened to the show at all? 
Just little snips. Okay, so yeah. just so you know, the whole thing is I'm going to be like, it starts out really friendly, and I give you the tour, and we talk about White Claw, and then I just turn on you. Right. It's like it's like a current affair. It's like a like a tabloid news show, or like like welcome to Hard Talk. <laughs> Hardball with Chris Matthews. Yeah, exactly. Uh, th- no, no, this is Aaron on Aaron. This is squ- the Squaren episode, and we're going to call it Squaren Off. Love I think that. it's what, yeah, we're going to call it squaring off this episode. So, man, um, I want to talk about a lot of things. Uh, mostly I want to talk about kind of how you got from where you were when you and I first initiated contact to where you are now, because I've been kind of watching your career tra- trajectory, and it seems like you are, man, you're moving on up, and it's really cool to to observe. And, uh, yeah, so I want to start with, Kind of how and you how you and I became acquainted because you and I became acquainted solely through the internet for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, um, thinking back, I think it was I was booking at Three Kings, and you were in like Love Stallion was then called Big Rock Radio, mm-hmm. and you had hit me up because you were looking to put something together for Big Rock Radio at Three Kings. Right. Correct. Yeah, I, I think it was even we had crossed paths when you were booking back when I had my pop rock band, my solo project, years, years back. What was your pop rock band? Just called Aaron Hart. Oh, really? Yeah. Where Where did I did I book you or I, did I? Were you at um, Were you at High Dive? I was. I was never at High Dive. Just no. Three Kings. I was. I was at Three Kings, and before that, I did throw a few shows on at the Rockaway before it closed down. Okay, so it must have been Three Kings. Yeah, I can't remember because Big Rock Radio started playing in 15, so it would have been sometime around there. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we eventually just changed the band name. Everyone thought it was a cover band. Right, right. But um, – <clears throat> Oh, because of the name Big Rock Radio, yep. people thought it was a cover band? Especially with the style and the look. Right, because you guys were going for – you guys were going for the straight 70s, 80s glam thing, right? Yeah. That was kind of what you were going for. And okay, I have to admit something. It, so first of all, how old are you? Thirty-four. Thirty-four. Okay, because when I first started talking to you, and I looked up your band, and I started to like learn, uh, learn more about you know, learn more about you, so I could put a show together to you and think of how and and think of how to best promote the show, how to best book it. Um, I thought you were much, much, much older. Like, I thought you were, like, one of these dudes in <laughs> their 50s who was, like, being like, you know what, man? Yeah, we really need to give this band a thing a try or just, like, put it to bed forever because, because man, I've, I've always wanted to do this. And, you know, my kids are in high school now and they don't really <laughs> need me. So, so I'm just, I'm just going to put together the band I've always wanted to. Like, I kind of thought you were part of that wave of butt rock revival. You know what I mean? I thought you were part of that. And so when we actually met for the first time face-to-face, because you and I had a fair amount of interaction online before we met face-to-face, and I, I want to say the first time we really met face-to-face was when I ran into you and Tay at Rocket Space after my son was born. I think yeah. that's the only time, like that was the very first time we met face-to-face. 
Yeah. So you yeah. you came up to me, you shook my hand, you congratulated me, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, man, Ransom, that's a great name, da da da. And I had, I don't know if you picked up on it, but I had this like, like delay of recognition. I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you came up to me, and I'm like, what's going on? Who is? Oh, come on, Aaron, come on, Aaron, you can do this. You can. And then <laughs> Tay came up next to you, and I went, oh. Oh, they must be having a love staff. This is Aaron. Okay, I know who this is now. And it, it took me a second to like really figure it out. But you and I had – so I ended up putting you on, ended up putting a show on at Three Kings for you, which you guys – did you guys just do a solo thing on that? It was just you guys and maybe one other opener? God, I can't remember. It was in – I think it was in like early 16 or something like right, that. Right. Yeah. Or maybe – did I put you on with a Who tribute? Was that a thing that it was? And it was a, it was like a bunch of no 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 because I remember being at that show and I would have remembered if you played. I don't know, man. I can't. Yeah. I legitimately can't remember because it's been a few things over the years. It was the heavy mental coaching. Yeah, a call and then. Um, uh, yeah, we talked. We talked on the phone and did a coaching consult when I first started doing that. Yeah, yeah. and I I remember seeing you, of course, open for Steel Panther and right. sent you a note like. Fuck yeah, dude. I, like, I remember that too. People are putting on costumes again, finally. <laughs> dude, and that's something that like when I saw the pictures of you guys doing – because you got to do Red Rocks recently, which I want to ask you about. But uh, I saw that you guys were doing the costume thing. You guys were doing the glam thing. You guys were putting a ton into the production side of your show. Um, has that been something that you've you've always done, even since you were just doing the the Aaron Hart solo project? That was, yeah, there was none of that in the Aaron Hart show, right? And uh, what had changed everything? I kind of quit the pop rock thing. I just wasn't inspired by it. Been doing the same shit for years, and uh, one of my buddies took me to. Prince, he called me like 15 minutes before doors, and he's like, "My girlfriend's sick. She's throwing up. She went home. Do you want this ticket?" So I popped a Molly and went at the to, Ogden. Yeah, at the Ogden. When, when when he did those like that yeah. that two night run at the Ogden. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just like fucking tripping hard, and <laughs> I'm I'm like next to my buddy. I'm like, "What the fuck am I doing with my life? I should be doing this." Right. So the tickets he had paid like two fifty a pop, and. uh and he did back-to-back – Prince did back-to-back shows. And as we're leaving, I was like, we're going back, man. We're going back. And I went and found, like, Scalp 2 for, like, 200 a pop. Really? Went back in there. and You uh, went to both shows back-to-back. Yeah. How many shows did he do over – like, it was a two-day run, right? I think it was just – I thought it was just a one-day. It was a one-night, two shows back-to-back? Yeah. That's fucking crazy. I was just like, I mean, just, you know, he'd catch the spot with his guitar up in the middle of a solo, and, and you see the silhouette. I was just, like, floored Dude, the he's, whole time. He, he's, he was amazing. I, I never was, got to see him. I never got to see him live in the flesh, but, like, ugh. and I can't believe he did the Ogden of all places. Like, And that was the last time he came to Denver because he, he passed away not too, not too long after that. Mm-hmm. So tell me, tell me about the Prince show. Tell me about how it inspired you. Tell me about, you know, the, the things that blew you away the most. Like for, for people who didn't get to see him Ugh. in their lifetime. Yeah, I mean, and this will lead up to, my, to the second concert I saw that helped inspire the band. But everyone grows up listening to, like, the butt rock hits, like Don't right. Stop Believing." And, you know, the whole um, 
like the, all the rock and roll cliches, they're cliches because they were cool 30 years ago. Right. You know? Right. And so to see – so the second show I saw, and I'll come back to Prince, was Front Row on Mushrooms with Kiss and Def Leppard. <laughs> oh, that's a weird show to be out on Gene Mushrooms. Gene is like in my face, you know, and Paul's shaking his ass. And um, – but yeah, like all the uh, – I don't think people have really – truly been exposed to what it was really like back then with like the sold out arena and people going right. nuts. A lot of the shows now are kind of like an older crowd, they're sitting down, you know, right. some people who just know a couple hits. Like it's at some, Herman's Hideaway. <laughs> yeah, pour some sugar. <laughs> or yeah, LA Guns comes through on a Monday night or something. Right, right. So watching the print show of how like perfect the choreography was, how insanely talented the musicians were, the detail was mind-blowing. Right, right. And, and that's so well-rehearsed, too. Everything mm. that they did was so deliberate. Like, Prince was was into every element of his show. Like, he he was a master of creating, mm-hmm. you know, creating a an environment, a, a play. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a production in the truest sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons a kiss. Oh, yeah. Similar. Cause they're like the maniacs of every little detail. Right. So. Um, and they're a continuation of, of whether they would probably admit it or not. Kiss, Def Leppard, all the bands, of the, the arena rock bands were definitely influenced by Prince, you know, and Prince was influenced by Mark Boland, you know, from T-Rex. Like, I, I, there's some quote somewhere where Prince out and out said there would be no Prince if there had been no T-Rex. Hmm. You know, they kind of, they kind of, one kind of happened right before the other went on to do what they did. You know what I mean? Like, Prince, Prince obviously was, started really, really early on. You know, he was jamming. Have you seen the, um, Tales from the Tour Bus about Prince. Mm-mm. It's a, it's a really good watch, man. Or they didn't do one about Prince. They did one about Morris Day, and they did one about Rick James. Hmm. And Prince is heavily involved in both of those stories. Gotcha. And just kind of talking about, you know, he was always kind of eccentric and odd, and 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 really stood out to people. You know, people were like, I don't know what it was about him, but he was just this intense character. Like, he was always an intense character. But then it was like after Mark Bolin and T-Rex really hit the scene that that the the theatrical side of it started to take a much deeper shape. And then, you know, that glam stuff and Bowie and everything around him, like that, and uh, God, Slade, you know what I mean? That whole that whole era of music eventually uh oh um Twisted Sister talks about it. Twisted Sister was kind of on that they kind of straddled that time period because mm-hmm. they were around and they were doing gigs and when they were young young they were really into the glam stuff and then they started incorporating that into the the heavier rock yeah. which then eventually became you know what we jokingly refer to as as butt rock or hair metal <laughs> but the the true like butt rockers and hair metal guys out there are like hey man we don't like it being called butt rock yeah it was a derogatory well even hair metal is a derogatory oh term, it is but that's how people ref- they don't realize that when they you refer know to what us I'm talking say. about when I say it if I say <laughs> yeah. hard rock or like early 80s heavy metal or arena rock that can mean a lot of things but I say 
butt rock mm-hmm. or or hair metal, and you're automatically thinking Def Leppard, uh, you know, Motley Crue, yeah. Poison, that whole that whole era of bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's 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 really interesting that those two shows would have such a, a massive impact on you. And what is it about m- seeing shows on mushrooms that just, <laughs> if you go in there, I know I noticed this, this last week, and this is something I want to talk to you about too. Uh, this last week, I noticed if you go into a show with a musician's mind on mushrooms, you're going to automatically start breaking down all the elements of the show and get really excited and inspired about it. So, like, if if any musician listening out there, any creator in general is out there listening and you're, like, feeling uninspired, seriously, take some mushrooms and go see your favorite band play, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so tell me more about Kiss and Def Leppard on mushrooms. Fuck. It was... I mean, it was good mushrooms, too. And it was... <laughs> and we had, a, we had a bit, and it was pretty intense. But... I mean, you know, I grew up hearing the hits and seeing the pinball machines, and I'd listened to them, tried them here and there, but even a lot of the 70s cuts were so dry, and that's why they cut those live records. But those don't even do it justice, and uh, the production didn't really get there really to the 80s. Um, But, yeah, having, you know, grown up with 90s rock and very simplistic writing and um or simpler writing then mm-hmm. let's just say like you know rocket by Def Leppard or you know Detroit Rock City by Kiss Pe- right. people don't really write that stuff anymore well it was the party pop music of its time yeah and you know i think there's there's a lot of shredders but they're more in the metal genre and uh, it's usually like their lead player will do a shredding solo of some mm-hmm, sort. Right. But even like Ace Freely, like he wasn't like doing a bunch of crazy, yeah, you know, no. like like jack off solos. Like all his stuff was pretty like simple, simply but well crafted melodies. Yeah. Yeah. You know very I mean? melodic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's another melodic rock is how it's sometimes described. But no one knows what that means either. But I think the um, right again is like, and I've read all their books and all that stuff. But Def Leppard works like a, I mean, thirty years, right? Like a, a well-oiled team. machine. Yeah. yeah, soccer team covering all the bases. It's like a symphony of guitars. Everything is just so dialed. Right. Um, but uh, and Kiss too. But the way they work the crowd, you know, Paul like divides the crowd and has one side scream, right. and the other side scream. And I actually took. Um, took some of my coworkers to see Kiss, and one of the kids is like 23 or something. He's like, I thought that whole show was kind of stupid and cheesy. They just did all this cliche stuff. And I was Dude, like, they created the that's, cliche. <laughs> that's what I said. I was like, they are the first guys to do that. You don't even know what you're, you don't know what you're talking about, young man. Hearing stuff like that bums me out. I had to, so I had this girlfriend once years ago who, you know, Nice gal, really nice gal, you know. But this was one thing, one area of contention between us is she came to see Ruckus play. And afterwards, she was trying to summon nice things to say. (laughs) But she was like, I don't know. It's just, it's too showy. She said, it's too showy. She's like, she's like, things are much more downplayed now. Like she was really into like, 
Berger Records bands, like super lo-fi, garagey, like loved King Tough. I went with her to go see King Tough, which was an awesome show, but it was more about like garagey vintage sounds and kind of it, it, it kind of lo- every band looked like it was just like assembled from the first four people you grabbed at high dive and you like you know set them up and you go you guys are going to be in a band <laughs> and you guys are being in a band yeah. and of course in the, it, the the fact of the matter is they're probably already all in bands together but mm-hmm. um, six of them yeah 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 six of them together but that was something that like it almost seemed like at that point in time, and this was this was you know maybe five or six years ago, there was an extreme disdain for production value. You know, like you only went to see a band like Kiss or or Motley Crue or or Def Leppard in in something of an ironic way. You know what I mean? Like that's like yeah. like why bands like The Darkness, I think. Um, haven't gotten the due that they deserve. They're you know? awesome. They're yeah. the shit, They're dude. They're so good. They are so rad. They're an amazing band. And like, like, let me, uh, uh, Thing Called Love it is a great song. It was worthy of being a hit, but there's so many songs on those records that are so good and they put on such a great live show. Mm-hmm. But I feel like they maybe got dismissed by elitists, you know, not even elitists, we'll just say the the underground rock elite for being kind of a showy band. Like people were into them in an ironic way when Thing Called Love came out mm-hmm. because it was so over the top and cheesy and it was like fun to like be into that, right. but not all the way into it to the point where you actually respect the band <laughs> as a legitimate band. Yeah, when did that come out? Oh, one, maybe? Something like that, Something but like it was that. a fucking monster, dude. Well, and it went from, you know, rock stars are gods in, like, 92 overnight to the grunge, like... There are human beings that that hate being famous. You're supposed to hate it, right? And, of course, like, uh, Kurt Cobain is just some, like... Normal twenty-one-year-old yeah. shit-talking from dude. suburban they put on, Seattle, and they put him on television. And everyone's like, "Oh man, this is our new god." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just another fucking dude running his mouth. I know. And about his, shit. It, it, his whole thing too was like, he was like, "We hate doing interviews." Like you look at like the nineties <laughs> with like Kurt Cobain and Mike Patton was pretty bad about it too. Is uh, you know when they would interview Faith No More and stuff, is they just had this disdain for the press and they they were the exact opposite of the who the gods had been right. before you know what i mean but at the same time they run their they ran their bands like a business and they took it very seriously and they they did their own things to hype up production value you know they built sets mm-hmm. they watched the bottom line on a tour they they did all the same business stuff just part of the the gimmick was you know presenting this front of like it's like, yeah, I'm one of the richest, most influential rock stars in the world, but I hate it. <laughs> I hate every Sure you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, that was something I noticed. Uh, we played with Ace Freely. And was that at Oriental? It was at the Oriental. Oh, dude, I wish I could have. I think it, I had something that It night. was such a good show, man. And, 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 and I've talked about it a couple times on the show, but I, I like talking about it because it's a, it was a, it was a heady experience to, to like observe from a structural perspective because like he comes in and you know he doesn't meet anybody you know you have to pay to go to the meet and greet 
Like he'll sign your guitar for $500. Classic kiss. You know, classic kiss stuff, <laughs> seriously. And well, and what's funny is you would think he would be a little more humble about it because, you know, he has the lowest net worth of anyone in kiss, <laughs> but he is still a product of that era. Right. You know what I mean? And he needs the money, but, but he, you know, hangs out on his bus or in the green room and, and isn't meeting people and the rest of the band isn't meeting people. Um, we mostly interacted with the crew and the crew were all really nice guys, but you know, they're union dudes that travel with all the bands and mm. the t-shirts are 40, $45 and the ticket price is super high. And it's the Oriental theater, which we couldn't sell out, you know, it's 750 people or something like that. Right. So we couldn't sell it out, but I was really surprised that Ace Freely didn't sell it out. Oh shit. But there's still a lot of diehard Kiss fans and. And I just remember having this kind of contempt for the 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 way that, like you know, just had this monolithic stage or this uh, this behemoth of a stage set up, you know, big empty fake cabs and the giant banner and the yeah. and the the <laughs> gigantic drum riser, and we're playing on like a one foot wide, you know, piece yeah. of stage. You know what I mean? And so I had this like disdain for that but i i started to think about it after the fact and it was like well and first of all i watched him play and the hair on the back of my neck stood up on end and it was amazing you know seeing ace freely play his songs yeah is fucking incredible and i got to see him in a small theater that my friends own that mm. is like you know and we got to play it so after the fact i was like okay that totally made it worth it it was actually me and my wife's first date as a couple, interestingly enough. Dang. Uh, was that show, yeah. But um, but uh, I started to think about it after the fact, and it's like they act that way because during their time, they were legitimately treated like gods. Like yeah. they were legitimately standing on stages in front of Ten thousand, tens of thousands of people, you know. Every woman in the crowd wanted to have their baby. Every guy in the crowd wanted to be them. Mm -hmm. You know, they they got mountains of cocaine backstage. <laughs> Def Leppard had those uh, backstage passes that was it said dick sucker the in blow the job pass, yeah the blowjob yeah. pass. <laughs> they had a database, man. Yeah. Before Excel was in every office, like yeah. they had a spreadsheet, like a groupie spreadsheet, man, like. So for them to then be the relics of the music world as we have come to understand it mm -hmm. has got to be jarring and alienating and surreal. Like they're just in some bizarro version of the world that, that they came into. Yeah, they're used to thousands of fans lining up, crowding their vehicles, showing up. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I I have to think what it's like because I you know most people let's say you see someone walk into the chain like a Starbucks and if they're in like their rock and roll motorcycle kind of stuff people kind of like hey man like that time's passed grow up you know <laughs> right but that yeah but I think so many of those um, it's just weird to be in the audience at these shows and you see all these like older cats are sitting down, but you know they were the ones just big hair oh, and yeah. pumping. And uh, and they're so excited. Oh, yeah. I, I think um, it's cool. Everyone still, of course, loves the genre 
but they their attitude towards it is strange. I mean, I'm sure like what you said about your band being too showy. Yeah, and all we did was double down. Like after she said that, like I took it to heart. <laughs> I took it to heart and I did you know, th- those were during the years that I was working on Broadway. So I was getting exposed to a, a, a wide variety of music. And I did, I didn't deliberately go, I'm not interested in any of that, you know, pussy hipster stuff. Like <laughs> I, I sought it out. You know, I, like I said, I went and saw King Tough Live, had a great time. You know, I listened to the stuff that people were kind of playing around me. Um, but definitely doubled down on the showiness side of it. And I think the main the main reason behind it, number one, was it was just really fun. Yeah. You know, it's fun to entertain people. It's fun to play dress up. It's fun to, you know, it's fun to put on a little, your little school play. Right. It's fun to put on your recital, you know. And, um, and then, but a, another big part of it was it was like, you know what? Um, who knows what actually works, you know, at any point in time, you know, the thing that is really the big way to do it right now is one way and that'll change in five years. And it did, mm-hmm. you know, it, it changes so ra- rapidly that if you commit to any one way of doing stuff, you're going to be wrong most of the time, <laughs> probably in your career, except for a very, even if you're like one of the biggest bands there is. You know, like if Nirvana was if Nirvana had kept consistently going, they would probably be experiencing something of a rebirth right now. But there would have probably been a time in the last 20 years that they were having trouble filling the gothic or something like that. You know what I mean? Or had put out some records that people would have dismissed as passe. It's like only the fact that like. You know, the same thing would have happened to Jimi Hendrix. The same thing would have happened to John Lennon at some point. Yeah, they all had to spend the 90s in rehab and get divorced. <laughs> like, know. that was, like, rite of passage. Right. Well, they were all having, like, breakdowns because they weren't gods anymore. Right. Or they were, try- they were trying to adapt, like, you know, Motley Crue. Um, have you read The Dirt? I saw the movie. You saw the movie? Yeah. Read the book. The book, the, we had the book on tour and we passed it around till the pages fell out. And it, it had one negative effect, which is it got me to pretty much dismiss Motley Crue from that point on <laughs> just because of how dislikable they were as people. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just reading the book really did that. But one of the um, one of the positive things that it did is it was very transparent about how they dealt with the 90s and how tough it was for them in the 90s. And they talk about when Vince Neil left and they had John Karabi in the band. Yeah. And John Karabi writes a chapter in it because the way they do the chapters is from the point of view of individual band members. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So, like, there are parts in the book where it'll be the same story told by Vince and then Tommy mm-hmm. Lee, and cool. then you know, so they're telling all these different things, and they kind of they kind of get these intermittent interjections. It's 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 pretty neat to see how they layered that in, but they have a couple parts that are written by John Karabi, and he's talking about how he's like in the studio when they're writing, 
and they're just in the booth like, try something that sounds like Oasis. Try something that sounds like Nirvana. Like they're sitting there like trying to create music and stay relevant in mm. this in this way that was like like before they were just playing what they played in their scene at the time. Right. But now they've got a job. Now <laughs> they have shareholders, now they have expectations, now they 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 have record contracts to preserve mm-hmm. and their whole way of life has gone the way of the dodo. You know what I mean? So yeah. they're sitting and like him just talking about how hard and stifling it was to just have these guys just like just just write something that sounds like what the kids are listening to these days. <laughs> oh god. You know, it's so it's just so that's, that's not horrible. rock and roll, right? Yeah. But you have that and it kind of I don't know. For me, it's given me a little more uh, it's provided me with the ability to extend a little more benefit of the doubt to rock stars. You know, you look at people from that time and you realize what living in that time did to their brains yeah. and their personal identity. <laughs> yeah. You're like, have you ever gone on the Monsters of Rock cruise? I've seen it. You've seen it? Yeah, I haven't been, though. Dude, it's it's worth going to... As as a mere sociological observation <laughs> yeah. experiment, dude. because it's all those people who felt like the rug got pulled out from under them in one place <laughs> with varying feelings on the subject. You know what I mean? Fans included. Yeah. Because so many of the fans from that time, and you're talking about 55-year-old guys walking around with eyeliner on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know what That's I mean? my future. <laughs> <laughs> like my uncle, my uncle Dan and I are standing in line to give our passports to uh, you know the concierge and get our passes and get onto the ship. And my uncle Dan's a good old boy from Pueblo, Colorado. You know what I mean? So he's he's a hilarious character, but you know sticks out like a sore thumb in certain certain places. Sure, he's definitely a fun guy to go on vacation <laughs> with for a variety of reasons. But we're standing in line, and there's this guy directly in front of us, and he's got the long raven black hair. He's got wraparound sunglasses, and he's got the soul patch, and he's yes. got he's got the like perma stain of eyeliner on, and he's wearing like tropical swimming trunks, <laughs> you know, yeah. it just like a t shirt of some band, and then flip flops, and I'm I'm looking at him, and I'm observing all the other guys kind of peppered throughout the room who have that like yeah. The the Nikki Six look, you know totally. what I mean? My uncle leans over to me and he goes, "I think that's Nikki Six. <laughs> I was like, "Uncle Dan, or Nikki Six, if he was here, which he is not, but if Nikki Six was here, he got on some VIP pre boarding. Yeah. He's already up in his suite, getting blown right now. <laughs> like like he's he's up in like the upper echelons of the ship." He is not down here with us, the steerage, you know, in in flip flops and swimming trunks, give, you know, giving his passport to a concierge with the rest of us. Right. He was like, I'm telling you, man, that's Nikki's. <laughs> God, that's hilarious. If you get the chance to do it, you should totally do it, man. I wanted to go on the Kiss Cruise. 
Kiss did a cruise? Yeah, they have their own cruise. Of course they do. Of course they do. Even uh, Paul Stanley's son's band played open for him. What's the name of Paul Stanley's son's band? Oh, God, It was called The Dives, but he left The Dives right after they played the Kiss cruise uh, to work on his own thing, and I still haven't heard any, what was the kiss? What was the kiss cruise like? They brought on. I, I know they've had like Bruce Kulick and I think they a couple of the other like past members come and associate stuff. But Steel Panther play. I think they played it last year. I think Steel Panther has played like all the cruises. Yeah, and Darkness played this year. What yeah. on the Kiss cruise? Yeah, that's badass. I was watching their like. Social media. That's great, man. But yeah, Steel Panther's like the in the darkness. There aren't really many mm, semi-big newer projects like that. Well, right, and I think I think probably what the appeal with them is is they are kind of a um, caricature of of the era, right? So. So they have a little bit more commercial appeal. There's something of like when you are like sincerely do it, like it, like fa- if when Faster Pussycat comes to Denver, they have a rough time doing their own shows. But when they go on the Monsters of Rock cruise, they're treated like they were in the old days, right? Because all their remaining fans are in one place on a boat. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think. I think Kiss even has trouble. Like when I went and saw Kiss, it was uh, Fiddler's Green with Motley Crue. And even that was kind of sparsely populated. Yeah, they, uh, well, even Kiss, they like, it, it seems like the decade after they hit, they kind of fall apart. Right, so they were like huge in the late seventies, and Gene Simmons hated the eighties. They like did the unmasking. They tried all sorts oh, yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah, like, yeah. so they read their books, and their popularity like fell. And then they kind they were of considered re- like a kids thing in the eighties, right? Uh, yeah, they were they were the uh, already the relics, you know. They were like the monkeys of their time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, well, they were like the Motley Crue of their time. Let's do the craziest shit, and then. I mean, they had plenty of good hits and good songs, but then they were changing members, and then, but you hear about how they're like they'd go on tour and like they'd have a sparse stadium. Can you imagine playing a fucking like forty thousand person stadium like Pepsi and like one out of every four seats is empty? Oh god, that would suck. Be humiliating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a big money loss, especially when you're used to. Oh yeah, you know, being giants walking the earth. They would have like. Uh, Paul talks about in his book, he's like, there'd be a whole room dedicated to all the birds who got to wait around for me to fuck one after the other after the other. Right. That's and the that's what he said. Literally. Which book was that in? Uh, Face the Music. Yeah. So I, I think he just came out with his second one. I'll have to read it. I'm sure it's not going to be This is good. Paul Stanley or Gene Paul Simmons? Stanley, yeah. yeah. Um, but they all kind of, well, Paul and Gene... Weren't doing drugs like Peter and Ace. No, no, they were sober. They were very serious. But they, I mean, they were abusing sex. Oh yeah, they were. Yeah, addicts for sure. <laughs> as much degree. as possible. Yeah, yeah. Did you um? Did you read Me Incorporated? I did. <laughs> I couldn't finish it. It's a short book, but I just, I was, I got about halfway through. Dude, and it's a short, short book. For those who don't know, Me Incorporated is Gene Simmons like. <laughs> 
like self-help book. Like it's his like business self-help guide. It's like it's like what you need to do is just do what I do. This is how I did it. This is why I'm successful and it's because I think these things. It's it's like yeah. it's presented like a I did it and you can too sort of <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, I like in I think it was like in a college or something, long airport layover and I picked up uh Donald Trump's Think Like a Billionaire. It was the same book. <laughs> right. And there I saw something on Facebook, I think, and it was it's like, because... who said it? Gene Simmons or Donald Trump? <laughs> and like, you, it's impossible to get it right. They're the product of the same era. <laughs> yeah, they're the same person. Oh, that's a good theory. They're the same fucking person. Dude, that's a good theory. I've never heard that theory, but it's a good one. Because, I mean, Gene Simmons' hair does kind of look like a wig anyway. And he is... Easily the worst president we've ever had, but Gene Simmons is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's easily the worst president we've ever had, but he is the greatest reality TV star that we've ever had. Sim- Especially if he was able to play Gene Simmons at the same time. We're talking we're, about Gene Simmons. <laughs> we're talking about. So wait, is Gene yes. Simmons Donald Trump or is Donald Trump Gene Simmons? There, you can use them interchangeably. Which one is the real guy? <laughs> like, which one is the real them? Yeah, I mean, the, all the stories are parallel of Gene's wife finds out he cheated a bunch, but then it's okay and similar. I mean, same fucking right, right. stuff, the whole thing. And yeah, the way yeah. they talk about just everyone and yeah. how they treat people is, is wildly similar. Well, they're also both dudes – from the East Coast in that time. Yeah. Like like East Coast dudes coming to their age of business persona in the 70s. You know, like I want to say it was probably Gene's idea when they they first started out and they were playing like – dude, because have you seen the – and I know I'm jumping around a lot. It's going to happen a lot. Just get ready for it. Fair. Um did you see the uh, Twisted Sister documentary? Mm-mm. That I mean, one's worth a watch, man. Okay. Because it talks about what they had to do in their time and the way that venues were structured in their time. Like on the East Coast, in New Jersey, in, in the tri-state area, mm-hmm. there were clubs all over the place. Like – Bands were, you know, this is pre-DJs because this is pre-disco. You know what I mean? That's why there was such a backlash against disco when it got going is bands could make a good living if you were going around and you were were playing mixes of covers and originals and you were bouncing around and doing the like the all-night shows at clubs. There'd be daytime shows at clubs and they show this map of the tri-state area and all the clubs that were on the circuit, and they would legitimately go play a show in the afternoon in in New Jersey somewhere, and then they would drive up to Pennsylvania, and they would do the late show there, and then mm. the next day, like, they're just playing every single night for, like, four to five hours at a time. Jeez. And so there was this, like, the East Coast had this, whole culture of just like working ass bands just out there grinding on it and it was it was a legit business Mm -hmm. so when kiss first started out and i'm sure you read about this they were they were doing one of those clubs you know doing a club on their circuit and 
they had invited some like label reps down and they hired a bunch of girls to just sit on their laps and hang out like they I didn't hear that part but yeah no they <laughs> it sounds like them no they they deliberately constructed that you know this these optics of yeah, them yeah. already being gods right. like kiss as we know it the big show with the girls and the the like over the top theatrics and stuff they did that from day one. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're like, yeah, we're going to sell this thing. It's going to be – it was very, very Trumpish in its execution, you know. Oh, it's yeah. just like, we're going to do this thing. We're going to we're gonna sing songs all about like partying and getting laid and we'll have the girls here and it'll be, it'll be great. It'll be very marketable. And meanwhile, <laughs> you know, Gene and Paul are just like serious, just like, all right. We're going to get together and write this song about pussy. And now we're going to get together and we're going to write this song about <laughs> pussy. And, and like, like he talks about Peter and Ace and he's just like – he's like, those guys were good players but they were unreliable and, you know, they right. they partied too much and they didn't take it very se- – they didn't take our writing songs about pussy very seriously. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's fascinating. I had never heard that theory before, that, that, that yeah. the Gene Simmons-Trump conspiracy. Well, I like it. <laughs> I like it. The whole thing too of like uh, in the way they take credit, right? And they of course tell this story later, um, but they that where they invite the reps and did the whole thing, they build it to the reps as if it were their show, but they weren't the headliner who brought all the people, and they like pissed off a lot of people. Wait, how? Wait, what do you mean? They so like so they, they were like opening for a bigger band. So it'd be like. Uh, Love Stallion opening for Steel Panther, and we go around telling everyone, like, this is Love Stallion show. See all these people? <laughs> They're here for us, you know? And, like, of course, everyone eventually saw through it, and, like, they pissed a lot of people off, but they got on the radar of a couple of people. Right. That seems kind of absurd. It seems like a Trump move. Totally. <laughs> right? <laughs> totally. It's like, let me just take credit for someone else's thing. It's like... It, oh, dude, he does that stuff. Fucking all the, I mean. Dude, that's a play out of the Gene Simmons handbook. <laughs> they, they have to be like sharing strategy or something. I mean, they, they must, dude, they've got to. I mean, they, they probably grew up in the same neighborhood or something like that. Something. You know what? I, that's fucking hilarious, dude. <laughs> There's just like, yeah, all these people were here to see me. It's like, uh, it's like. Trump taking a picture of a different rally and being like, yeah, this is the crowd for my rally. This is the one that everybody was at. It was a a huge rally. It was huge. That's so fucking funny. I didn't even think about that. That's so good. (laughs) Yeah. So like earlier when you were talking about one and the edibles kicking in, I was like, which which one's he talking about? Oh, yeah. I couldn't tell. Oh, yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah, me incorporated. That's a Dude, it's a great story. But from where we are now – that seems absurd. Like if Love Stallion had told people like, hey, this show at the Fillmore, this is a this is a Love Stallion show. Like people have been like, we've got the fucking internet, dude. Yeah. Like we we see the poster, we see the official material that come out, but given the time that like really the only way anything got advertised was what, in the paper? Or posters up at the club because Mostly, I don't think with the exception of like the garden, you know, Madison Square Garden or like big venues, I don't think that 
any club was really a destination club. You know what I mean? Like nowadays, Three Kings can be a destination club. You know, if Joey Belladonna from Anthrax or Model T Ford or, you know, uh, uh, Valiant Thor, whoever it is, happens to play at Three Kings, they can put out information on the Internet, you know, and people will come from all over to go to that venue. I don't think that was the case with like the small to mid-level clubs back then. It was like the only way you found out about shit was you happened to be in the scene around that particular venue or set of venues or that geographical region. Right. So it would be by the time the word gets through the grapevine that they took credit for someone else's show, it's already had the impact that they wanted. And the backlash is no match for that. Yeah, it was huge limit of information. They put up flyers and – I mean, back then it seemed like it was easier to have that controlled image and kind of control the media. Well, easier no f- to get it, easier to get people at your shows too. Well, Gene and uh, and Donald grew up without any real fact checking uh, <laughs> going on, so they yeah, got used yeah, to yeah. decades of just you can say whatever you want. People like, believe you. People people will people believe whatever you tell them. Whoever's got the best publicist wins. Yeah. Whoever's got the best story wins. It's hilarious. Know? Yeah. So I think. Um, yeah, when we were talking about, let's say, the, the transition of the 90s and the 2000s, it becomes more and more like raw footage and real information that people can check. Right. And it's humanized everyone, which is a good thing. Right. But they're like, oh, they're not a god. They're just a dickhole who yells at the guy at Starbucks. and Right, right. Um, yeah, like doesn't, you know, can't sell out a small little show, but he won't meet anyone thing. But I'll tell you what, that ended up, and, and maybe you experienced this, because another, another connection that we have is we did the first two years of Steel Panther at the Fillmore, and then you guys, did you do the, you didn't do the next year, you did the year after that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you notice, and and I'm curious if the same thing happened for you guys, did you notice that the fact that the guys didn't come out to the merch table, worked in your favor. Did you experience that? Like, do you think you sold more stuff because, and engaged with more fans because of the fact that those guys weren't weren't present and the fans wanted to meet somebody? Did yeah. you have that experience? <laughs> yeah, and we made a, um, so, yeah, you know Tay, of course. Tay was right. like, um like I had to like drag him just to get a photo. He's like, "No, I'm going to go watch the show and hang out in the middle of the crowd with the fans, you know." Oh yeah. And uh Sabrina and I, you know, she's in her like sexy uh, you know, leather bikini thing. Right. Um but we walked the whole arena saying hi to people and we got a ton of people hitting us up after and a lot of great feedback. Oh and, yeah. Um you know, we did a meet and greet too, like just side stage of Red Rocks, but yeah, like the whole like they hid out and you know, they were Friendly guys, they had been like up all night playing a show in L.A. and I get right. that, and they aren't used to getting. But yeah, they didn't really come out and say hi to anyone. Well, there's a certain level, like they came out when we played with them. Ralph came out after the crowd had mostly cleared out. Like he came and introduced himself to us. Like Sticks was really, really, really very nice. He's a, yeah, he's awesome. Dude, Sticks was like the most polite person I've met in rock and roll. Like, he was very nice. Yeah. So I, 
I was backstage. I'm like, got my stage costume on. It's after our set. I introduce myself to him. His eyes are kind of cashed. So he's like, <laughs> he's like looking at me and like, oh, okay, right on. And I walk out the back and then he comes chasing after me and he goes, Dude, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were the singer of the opening band, man. I feel like a dick. I'm I'm totally baked. Blah blah blah. Like comes out, <laughs> shakes my hand, says what's up. He's like, Did you have fun? You did a great job out there. Thank you so much for playing. Just super gracious, super kind guy. Cool. And I think I think it's because all of those guys have been circuit musicians longer than they've been quote unquote rock stars. Yeah. Like professional entertainers. Like they're not see on the street rock stars like they put on a costume and they go do a show and you know it's it's a character that they play Mm -hmm. they're not walking down the street gene simmons or russell crowe or whoever the fuck it is right i mean they're they've been regular dudes longer than they've been you know quote unquote rock stars at least from our in in our world and our experience those guys are rock stars right yeah, yeah. I think, uh, and Michael talks about it at the time, you know, he wanted, let's just say, Van Halen with David Lee Roth. They had a great guitarist, they had a great band, but the singer was lacking. Or they had, you know, there's all these bands that didn't have every single element, and they tried to build that with the comedy and Did with the show. Did he think that and... David Lee Roth was lacking? No, well, let's just say, well, I don't think anyone will dispute that his voice isn't, he's not the greatest singer. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> he, he is a god to me. Nobody sings like David Lee Roth. No one sings like David Nobody Lee Roth. Sings but it's like also David more Lee just yelling and and woo and that right. <laughs> and he's but a wonder, I can't do it. But he's a great writer. Literally yeah. everything. But I don't think he necessarily. And maybe I'm maybe I'm misquoting him of knocking David. Right, right, right. But he he kind of hey, this band is awesome in seven of ten areas, and they wanted to hit it on every single. Right aspect, even to comedy and to right production and videos and the whole thing, and I think they've done a fucking rad job because no one's doing that. Doesn't right. seem that full assault. Right, and I, I kind of saw them like in in a lot of ways they're they're a Vegas act. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they're a really fucking good one. You know what I they're mean? They're the they best. Are like, do they? They they put on a consistently entertaining show every time they do it. They've got it completely dialed in. Like the joke, like the stage banter and the jokes are super fun. And then, dude, they're I don't know. They're not. They don't seem up their own ass about it. <laughs> yeah. Like every experience I've had with them, they're like, you know, it's like it's a fun job. You know, we fly out and we get paid to do this, and it's great. But that you know, this is our job. This is how we make our living. Being you know, being entertainers. Right. Like it's. It's really cool, man. It's really cool to see. Um, how was the crowd to you when you guys played it? I think, first of all, we were just kind of overwhelmed right. to see, like, you know, it's like the that many uh, people. When you're playing rock band and it's like this fuzzy crowd, that's almost kind of what you see. You're, you're yeah. a little overwhelmed. Um, it was, the crowd was great, like, responded super well. It's interesting, though, you think, um, you know, whenever you get, let's say, um, you know, the cameras cut in, let's say, a live, de- you know, live video or something, right. you always see like the best parts of the crowd. 
But I thought the funny thing was, and we're, you know, we have 2,000 people out there. How many people are like arms crossed, like fucking deadpan, <laughs> staring at you, and they don't even know what they look like? Like nine out of 10 people, a couple are checking phones, and then like one out of 10 is just like, yeah, you know, yeah, devil's yeah, yeah, horns yeah, yeah. rocking out. So they certainly warmed up to us. We got a lot of feedback of people we started playing, and they were like, what the, which is, this has been happening to us since the start of like, what the fuck is this? Right, what is, right, right. What is going on here? Like, right. uh, they look like an 80s style, like an 80s band, but we don't recognize these songs, and it's, right, right. it's weird, and it's, you know. Um, but yeah, typically our, our, I mean, it was the reaction at the merch table, too, and at Red Rocks and everything. It's just this, didn't know what to think of you for the first few songs, but then... right. I loved it, and that, you remind me of fill in the blank, right? That's, that's all it takes. And, and the, like, what we try to do is keep our conversion rate high. You know, we think about it like that. We're like, we're like okay, if we've got a 10 to 20% conversion rate, you know, then, the, like, if we can get in a position where we're doing the volume, right, we know that we can, like, I want to say we figured just in merch sales, we, like, broke it down by ticket, and we were like, we made about a quarter a person, you know, which isn't bad. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good payday. You start breaking down, like, the arithmetic of that. Or you go, like, you go, okay, if we play a show at, say, uh, at Three Kings, right, and we know that, and we're playing in front of a crowd of people, uh, and we know that, like, conservatively, probably five to 10% of them are going to dig what we do. You know, that's, that's playing it ultra conservatively. The, the, those are going to be the people that are going to be most excited and come see you again. All right. So three Kings is about a 500 capper we'll say, right? So you can pretty much count that if you played a sold out show at three Kings, that you're going to pull away 50 to 25 people from that, that show. But it's kind of scalable in the sense that, like, your percentage goes up depending on the mood of the rest of the show. Your percentage goes up depending on the particular interests of the people in the show. You're, it, you're, it goes up and up and up. So you're just, like, trying to create these scenarios where, where you're able to, to do volume and just pull in whatever your conversion rate is, you know. When we played with Steel Panther, we found that most of the people there were anywhere from ambivalent to uh, outright, like, aggressively hateful, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Most of them are going to be. But 10 to 20% of the crowd is going to like you. To like you a lot, to fucking love you. You know, mm-hmm. about about 2% of that crowd is going to be the type of people who come and see you at every single show. Yeah. And since then, roughly about 1% of the crowd that was there will say about – or wait, let me think here. Yeah, roughly about 1% of the crowd there, about 30 people come and see us every single time we play. Yeah. And they end up being – our greatest our greatest mouthpiece, you know what I mean? It's almost like they're another amplifier in the band. 
like they're like the hype amplifier. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you play your show and you've got like 30 people who are just like, ah! And then you go play other shows mm-hmm. and the rest of the crowd observes that and they either go, I don't get this, I don't understand it, and, right. and, and excuse themselves. Or other people in the room go, okay, what the fuck are these guys so excited about? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was a certainly a turning point for us. Have you seen a lot of that coming back? Like a lot of the like have you seen that you've got this like steady yeah. base of people from doing those what two really huge gigs that you did? Yeah, and it was mostly I'd say Fillmore had bigger impact than Red Rocks. Yeah. I think Red Rocks has a is like a big buzzword and and uh it's a prestige gig. Right, right. right. Um, but I think film, as far as people who come to shows and people who like catch me on the, you know, be floating around Rhino after rehearsal or something and they call me out. Oh, yeah. So I think we got more of our fans from there because Red Rocks, we opened for Face Vocal Band and it was an older crowd, a little more into doo wop than into butt rock. <laughs> so what, what, I was going to ask you about that. What was, what is Face Vocal Band? We hadn't heard of them until... Uh, Are they like an acapella group? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay, tell me about this. This is great. <laughs> so they like had some video contest, and we submitted, and we, we like barely broke the top ten, and they were like, we're going to pick someone from the top ten. And Straight Six, are you familiar with them? Oh, yeah, I love those guys, They're man. so good, man. And they oh, had, they're like, amazing, dude. They had like, blown everyone out of the water by ten, tenfold. And, uh, but Face Vocal picked us, I think, because... We're like I don't know a little more of a, a, I don't know, a circus <laughs> Vegas act. It looked more like what they thought, right? Like I don't know. Let's get some rock band. Oh, they <laughs> look like a yeah, yeah. They look like what we think a rock band looks like. Let's get them. But straight six, right? I mean, I guess they're not all like raven black hair and leather vests, but they're closer to that than like a Dude, Disney butt rock. <laughs> That's fucking great. That's great. But that's please tell me that that's not the first time you've described your band to someone. It's the first time. (laughs) Yeah, I was just thinking like a Disney. What is Love Stallion? Disney Disney butt rock. Disney butt rock. I gotta see that original though. Original (laughs) Disney. Original Disney butt rock. That's great. Yeah, it was. um, It like when they called us to t- to invite us to play and like another four times they're like hey and uh, just want to remind you this is a family friendly show and oh he- they were calling to give you the reminder the yeah. content reminder i mean cuz i mean we it's a lot of thrusting and spandex and saying <laughs> fuck and yeah dick it's a lot of it's and- a lot of stuff wrapped in st- spandex yeah it's a lot of stuff it's a lot of bundling <laughs> packaging it's a lot of packaging so even like the manager came in right before we went on. Hey, you guys need anything? You're good, and you could tell it was like kind of this empty ask. And just want to remind you again that this needs to be family friendly. <laughs> and we're like, we we got it. We yeah, got it. totally got it. We got it. Um, and we, you know, uh, I think we had to like uh, definitely reel ourselves in. But still, um, how how was the crowd? It was a lot of like family and older people, but we had a lot of our crowd there wearing our shirts. We oh, probably cool. had like a couple hundred of our people. Well, out. they want to be there for that, man. That's an event. Yeah, literally everyone, like friends, family, anyone who ever heard of us, people part, you know, that was like the one show everyone came to. That's and, really cool, man. Yeah. 
See, that's the other thing those big those big volume shows are good for is it's like like man, we play a lot, or we used to play a lot. We don't really play as much anymore. But when Tay was in the band, you know, for sure, we played a fucking lot, you know. Yeah. I mean, like that dude's a workhorse. But it, I mean, even after Tay left, you know, we played a lot and and people in this town, you know, they start to, and I've, I've mentioned this before, they start to take you for granted in a non-derogatory way, you know. Right, right. It's not, it's not malicious in any way. It's just like, it's like, yeah, they're a local band. Like, it's like, it's like, I don't go to Pete's Kitchen every day, you know. <laughs> right. I went, th- I went there a bunch when I was a teenager, but now I like maybe go there once every couple of years. It's like, yeah, it's good, but, you know, I, I fucking live here. I can go there anytime I want. Right. You know what I mean? Or I can go to Casa Bonita every t- anytime I want. Or I can go to the mountains anytime I want. When was the last time you went to the mountains? You know what I mean? Right. Like, you you just take it for granted in, in like, the sense that you're it's around you all the time. So when you do those bigger shows, it's also a great opportunity for, like, People who are your friends and they love your band, but they've seen you a hundred times, like they get to have, they get to share in that experience with you too. Right. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. I mean, they're playing with that band we all really like and, and I've been wanting to see them play and that's a good excuse to go out and, mm-hmm. and fuck, man, I want to see the boys in, you know, this amazing theater that I've seen all this or on stage at Red Rocks. Fuck yeah. I'll go out for that. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a really cool added benefit that you get from it. Yeah. That is something we've uh, wrestled with. I want to get your opinion on it, but it's like, yeah, what, for, what's up for ours, you know, with the kind of, uh, with the production, everything into it, and you don't want to, let's just say, play every weekend or play every right. couple of weeks because then no one comes and you thin out the crowd thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, we've we've kind of deliberately spaced it out so we're given something new. and um, But, it, I mean, I do that with my own friends' bands. If if, if I can see their, their band again next weekend... Right. And then yeah, I haven't been to the mountains in three months. You right. Know? No. Well, I think um, – so that there's actually quite a bit to unpack there if you really want to talk about it. Hit me. Okay. So um, first of all, I think that eventizing is really important. I think that really the only way you're going to draw a – draw a crowd that like is going to pack the place out is through eventizing it by creating something that makes it the place to be to hang out like you'll see shows that come through and people who aren't even into that genre of music want to go to that show because it's the place to be you know like Wu-Tang just came to town and people that aren't even Wu-Tang fans went and froze their asses off at Red Rocks to go see Wu-Tang Clan. Now, I did not because – and this is, this, is, this is a way that – this is another connection that you and I have. Uh, I was at Ween for three days, okay? And what's fun about going to, you know, three days of Ween shows is you get to see the people who are going out because they're legit fans of the band – and then there's the people who are there kind of surrounding them that are there because it's the Halloween, you know, right. crazy, weird drug party weekend. And they know it's they know it's going to be insane and weird no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like Ty, my drummer, who is not a fan of the band, you know, 
and Jake Fairley came with me. I ended up scoring tickets for them, you know, and came with me to the show, not being fans, but being surrounded by that crowd of people who has built up over the years and are really into that. Right. And they they came out to check it out uh, and had a great time and became fans in their own right. So it's like your show has to have something of a gravitational force to it. Yeah. And you can't do that if you are playing all the time in town. And so I think the importance of building regular tour mark uh, tour markets is essential. Like you think about how ma- like how much you want to play. You know, like for me, being able to make a living off of 20 gigs a year would be pretty sweet. So you think, okay, what are we going to shoot for locally? What are we going to shoot for regionally? What are we going to shoot for nationally? And what are we going to shoot for internationally? And then you kind of like set your goals in those different regions and you kind of each each kind of subdivision has its own unique characteristics as far as when's appropriate. Touring internationally, you're going to go – a little bit longer, but you're only going to be able to go once an album cycle. Okay. Mm, right. You know, nationally, you you can hit places nationally quite a bit, but you're gonna want to go to the same places over and over again. So I would say if you want to focus on national, you know, hit two or three markets and then hit kind of everything in between. And then, you know, regionally you can kind of go 50 to 100 miles outside of Denver to other places, and it won't affect your draw in the smaller towns. In fact, um, Martin Adkins talks about this five-pointed inward crush. like It's like a star pattern, touring pattern, where if you think of your hand and you've got the middle of your hand is Denver, let's say. So that's like your primary market or Seattle or something like that. Mm -hmm. Then – Leading up to a weekend show, you go and play shows in like five other smaller sub-markets around the area and use those events to promote the show in the primary market. Interesting. Yeah. So, but locally, we only do shows locally if it's a support gig. Like, basically, it comes down to... uh, that old school rule, you know, I get to I get to play with a lot of jazz guys now and stuff like that. Yeah, so you're at uh, City Park. Yeah, it was su- it's super fun, you know, in the Boingo Project and all these different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I get to play with a lot of these jazz dudes. And it's like, you know, the rule is kind of the old school rule is like you either do it for the money, the fun or the exposure. And Gordo's talked about this on the show before, too. You do it for the, the one of those three things. Or exposure or opportunity, we'll say. And if you can hit two out of three, you're doing pretty good. Like you know that. what I mean? So so we tend to try and hit two out of three with a local show. If it's like something like, you know, we did our uh, we did our video premiere at Lost Lake. It didn't draw super well. The last two times we played Lost Lake, we haven't drawn super well. I don't know if it's a geographical thing or it's if it's just that wasn't a strong enough event for people. It didn't have sufficient gravity. There's got to be some formula right. for like gravity over distance. You know <laughs> what I mean? Where it's like, if your fan base is low, it would be really cool if Facebook with all their uh, infinite um, information mining would 
give us information on what neighborhoods our followers spend the most time in. You know what I mean? And and make your show something in the middle of the greatest concentration of your fan base. Yeah. It's the law of the starfish. <laughs> the law of the starfish. Everyone loves a good starfish. Yeah, the law of the starfish. I like that. That's an album title for it. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. That's that's a, So the way I feel about like playing locally is, is definitely um, uh, qu- quality over quantity. Yeah. But – as far as nationally and abroad, I think it's more of uh, a combination of both. You know, like you if if basically you're just treating every other place like your hometown, but you're doing a lot more of them elsewhere. You know what I mean? Like you're only going to be able to go to Seattle once a year, twice if it's like a really strong market, mm-hmm. and then you'll go to some other places on the way out and the way back. But you're not going to go to Seattle every other month. You know what I mean? You're going. You're, yeah. You, you should treat Denver the same way. Yeah, I think it's a distinction between, let's say, the '70s tri-state area circuit right and today. It's a very different, right? Very different thing. Well, and disco came out, which yeah. led to DJs. Kisses Dynasty too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's like, oh, Kiss's Dynasty? <laughs> yeah. Have you heard that record? Yeah. I was made for loving you, baby. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Real quick, do you mind if we take a... Yeah, let's take, take a break. Take a minute for a pee-pee? Yeah, let's take a break, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll come back. Awesome. like that sign off. I want to touch your peepee. <laughs> All right. I want to touch your peepee. <laughs> um, we've been working on, uh, here at the Nug Nation, we've been working on a new uh, uh, Bong Burgundy interview. So there's this segment we do. It's called Potty Talk with Bong Burgundy. <laughs> and basically, Bong Burgundy interviews celebrities in the men's room. <laughs> and so far... Uh, like I've I've done Red Man, I've done Afro Man, I've done Nappy Roots, uh, Jaron Benton and Flick, uh, Scotty ATL, and then we just had uh, Ritz in here recently. Who he's like he like tours with Yellow Wolf, and he's like a double time speed rapper, like you know modern rapper dude. He's pretty fucking good too. But we had him in here, and um, oh fuck. Uh, I'm high and I lost my own train of thought. Uh, interviews in the bathroom. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And oh yeah, and the, sign-offs. We were talking about the sign-offs. There we go. And uh, in the middle of the Ritz interview, um, I just came up with this new sign-off where Bong Burgundy says, "This is Bong Burgundy, and I'll meet you in the men's room." <laughs> That's nice. his new sign-off. I'll meet you in the men's room. It has a much more, like, scarily ominous... But there are layers. Yeah, there are layers to it. There's, yeah. there's like, a, an element of dread to it, and there's an element of excitement to it, and there's an element of, like, you know, wieners hanging out to it. Anyway, want to give a quick shout-out to our sponsors. 
first and foremost, our most venereal, nay, venerable sponsor, Matula Plumbing. Matula! Des Plaines, Illinois. Shit rolls downhill. Don't be at the bottom. Your number two is our number one priority. Your shit is our bread and butter. Angie's List Super Service Award winner back in 2011. The only year that matters. 1-1 is the only one. He'll wear the booties for you. Jerry Matula, hit him up. Tell the boys we sent you. Uh, tell him the boys sent you. That's what I meant to say. Uh, yeah, thenugnation.com, this podcast, and a whole bunch of other badass stuff are created at the Nug Nation Studios in beautiful Denver, Colorado. Got to take a tour with Aaron. What'd you think? It's, I love the space. Dude, it's pretty it's cool, cool, right? yeah. Yeah, we're making we're making neat stuff over here. Check out what we're up to. Um, stay tuned for some some really amazing bits of content. I'm not allowed to talk about, but what is out there that you can check out is uh, you can see the music video we did with Billy Ray Cyrus. You can see Bong Burgundy's interviews with all the rappers I mentioned before. Uh, you can see some of the. Uh, story episodes that we've put out that are fucking hilarious, our original episodes. Uh, and man, stay tuned. We're going to have a bunch of stuff coming out of here real, real soon. Rocket Space Rehearsal Studios, the official rehearsal space of motherfucking Ruckus and Love Stallion. Yeah. And every other goddamn band in town. It's the place to be, man. And the best part is at Rocket Space, you ain't got to carry shit. That's yeah. the best part. Like 27th and Larimer, right next to the Larimer Lounge. Stop by, have a beer with Mikey Mulligan, and then uh, and then head in, man, and uh, get your jam on with minimal setup and breakdown, uh, fair prices, and some of the just friendliest, most helpful and informative staff around. Check it out, rocketspace.com. Uh, let's see, Evergroove Studio in beautiful, beautiful Evergreen, Colorado, uh, nestled in between Black and Shadow Mountain. We had somebody from Evergroove producing the last show, and even he couldn't tell us, like, couldn't answer that question for us. So it remains a mystery, the mystery of Black and or Shadow Mountain. Uh, go to Evergroove Studio for your next project. They do amazing work. It's a state-of-the-art studio. They just did a full remodel, and everything is looking banging in there. The control room looks like a goddamn spaceship. And, man, you can get some amazing, amazing sounds out of that place with their selection of new and vintage equipment and uh, and a producing staff of engineers. Yeah, man, it's a good place. Oh, also, solar-powered. Did I mention that? Yeah, baby, solar-powered. Go check them out. Uh, Evergroove Studio. Uh, Flipside Music on South Tacoma Street here in Denver. All the stuff you want, none of the stuff you don't. It's the, the the all the slurry of the big box stores distilled down to its to its most crystalline and potent components. Like like if methamphetamines, like if crystal meth, like the best crystal meth was musical gear. You know what I mean? Where it's kind of like, you know, you don't want all the toxins and all the others. Well, there's still toxins. Okay, think about pure uncut cocaine all right that's what that's what that's what the selection is like at flipside music flipside music it's like buying cocaine the best cocaine it's like buying uncut bolivian <laughs> cocaine 
Go check them out at Flipside Music and buy some cocaine. Anyway, oh, Mutiny Information Cafe to South Broadway in the heart of Denver, Colorado. This is, of course, a mutiny transmission. Uh, Mutiny Information Cafe. You go there a lot? Here and there. Here and there? Yeah. Books, comics, uh, live events, the largest selection of cereals and Torini syrups in the world. Nobody has a bigger selection. Nobody. Uh, let's see. Oh, what else do they got? They got, they got, let's see, books, records, coffee, comic books, pinball, live events, and a media service division called Mutiny Transmissions, of which we are a part. And they are now broadcasting um, from the basement of Mutiny Information Cafe, Cafe. Seriously, these guys got their hands in everything. The, the syndicate, they run the whole town. Go check them out. See what they're up to. Mum, 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 mum. Did I get everybody except for – okay. All right. I think I got everybody. I don't have Gordo here to double-check for me. All right. So last but most, the badass mofos who back us up via a small recurrent contribution on patreon.com slash mfruckus. Uh, you guys make the goddamn world go round. Thanks to you, we are able to do this podcast. We are able to tour. We're able to fly Tony in and back to Chicago. We're able to purchase equipment that we need to to keep this thing afloat. We're able to pay other artists to create stuff for us. We're able to hire people like Evergroove Studio and rehearse at Rocket Space and buy equipment at Flipside Music and, and hire Jake Fairley to draw the Frontlines of Good Time series and hire Macy Little to animate it and hire, you know, anyone that we need to hire to do anything we need them to do so that we can do what we do. Thank you guys very much. Your support, it, it, it really means the world to us. Uh, check it out, patreon.com slash mfruckus. Okay, so we had a good little break. Uh, I wanted to um, mention another, because this is something that occurred to me that I've been kind of excited to talk about, because we're talking about show stuff and production stuff, and we're kind of having a, a meeting of the minds. Like, I think it's, I think it's good that we sat down to talk. Because it's like two theatrical front man, front men, like trying to figure out ways that they can be more theatrical on a on a budget, like ways we can make it work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I like to think of us as the world's greatest opening band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's like yeah, you know, we'll pro- we can't even get a hundred and fifty people into a room to see a show. That we're headlining, but man, if you put us on with a band that people really want to go see, they're they're going to get a heck of a show before the show that they came for. Like they're going to have a good time. Um, so one of the uh, one of the other connections that we had is when you and I first started talking. Um, I had posted something online about how I wasn't going to be able to go to the Runaween shows that were coming to town, and to my surprise. You had bought me two tickets to go to the show at the Ogden Theater, which is like the most like the most generous, like in the top five most generous things that anybody has has done for me. Cool. I, I, I would say the most generous, but but a lot of generous stuff has happened in my life. So I've like. I don't want to like somebody will be listening and be like, but what about that time I gave you my kidney? You know what I mean? Like. 
But I had posted something about not being able to go and how I was bummed about it. And you hit me up and you were like, hey, man, I just wanted to let you know I just bought you two tickets to go see Ween at the Ogden. And and I went and I had a great time. And uh, since they – so I kind of Karen, – when Karen Kuda was on the show, we talked about the rock or be rocked conundrum. Like basically if you're playing in an active band – you won't – you kind of have to make a choice between going to shows or playing shows. Yeah. Like you don't get to go to as many shows because of the fact that you're always playing stuff and that eats up a lot of your free time. And so for most of my life, I honestly had a pretty spotty attendance career with as as a spectator of shows. Like I haven't been to – nearly as many shows as 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 most of the people I know like in the scene like I I was mostly playing shows or touring or something so most all the bands that I saw were pretty much on bands that I was on with very few exception and although I've been a Ween fan my whole life I didn't go see them live for the first time until they did what would end up being their last show at um, the Fillmore Auditorium. They did a run of three shows, and I was like, I was like, ah, I could go to all three shows, but I'll just go to one, and they'll be back. And I went to one of the shows, and I was wasted, and I was on Coke and mushrooms and everything else. You know what I mean? I took everything, so it wasn't even like, it was just pretty much in a fog the whole time. <laughs> and they ended up breaking up. And they, and I said, you know, I was really sad about it because I was like, man, I never even really got to like enjoy going to see that band. I was like, if I can help it, I'm not going to miss another Denver show. Four years later, they end up getting back together. And I go to, uh, I go to all three of the reunion shows at the First Bank Center and I have like the greatest time of my life, right? And I'm like, all right, I'll go and see him all the time. The next time they came through, they did Red Rocks and then they did two nights at the Ogden Theater. And it was just during a time when, when you know, I had left the bar to try and pursue the, the coaching business and it didn't work out because as it turns out, that's a really hard business to get into. And it's yeah. it's kind of a market largely filled with hucksters and snake oil salesmen so it kind of turned me off a bit and there was just there was a lot to it that 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 just didn't work out and I ended up like working for biker gyms selling hot dogs and (laughs) you know that and you can make really good money working for that company but at the time I was you know the newest guy and they tended to give it's it runs much like a catering company so they they tend to give the gigs that make the most to people with seniority and the highest need. So like Jerry, who used to play for Ruckus, he's got two daughters and, and you know, he had been there the longest. So he worked all the, all the best gigs and then it kind of went down from there. Since I was the newest guy, I ended up working campus in the summer a lot. And if you've been to Auraria campus in the summertime, it is a, it is a scorching hot ghost town. It is a wasteland there. Once, yes. So, yeah. So they came to town, and I just happened to put something out online that I was bummed that I wasn't going to be able to go. And you, like, just for for no reason other than you were feeling particularly generous, you sent me those tickets. And I don't know if I ever got to thank you to your face for that. 
My pleasure, man. That was super cool. First of all, what is it in your values structure? Like what is important to you about doing that? Because I get the feeling that that's like that's part of just like who you are as a person, like how you behave, right? Would you say you're a pretty generous person? Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, um, yeah, I guess I'd been reflecting on the just years we hadn't, we'd known each other that had not met each other. (laughs) Right, right, right. And then, uh, you know, the heavy, heavy mental consult. And I was like, you know, I've been in, so I'm in real estate for the last 12 years and it took, fuck, like seven years to get to even pay my bills, you know? Damn. And, um, yeah, and I've had some... You've been in real estate for seven years? That's what oh, you did? For 12. Oh, for 12. Yeah, since I moved here. So it was like, I moved here right when the market crashed. So wait, you're 34, so you were 18 when you... 22. 22. I <laughs> suck at math. You're 22. <laughs> Yeah. All right. That's Denver Public Schools and marijuana for you. Fair. Right. Fair. So, okay. So you were 22, and when yeah. you got your real estate license, yeah, I moved out here from Chicago, and the the goal was to stop here for like a year, maybe two, learn real estate from my uncle, who was like doing all that creative shit and the boom, and then move to LA and do music, and then whole market crashes. Can't. I don't have two sticks to rub together. Right. Until like. The market took off in like fourteen, so uh, I always I have a big heart for like people pursuing the arts and music and and not being able to do stuff, dude. I, yeah, I mean, shit. Of course, I've still got cards like everyone else, but I was like, my friend had a roofing company. I'd go out and like sell roofs in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in a rat infested motel for four days to pay the right. rent. So like, I know what it's like to, dude. Know, and the odds are so scarily bad. You know what I mean? It's terrifying. Like, I think we have, I really think we have better odds than ever of, (laughs) like, the odds are worse than ever of becoming a megastar, but the odds are better than ever of making a living. Of being able to rub two sticks together, you know what I mean? <laughs> or two wieners together. Oh, yeah. You're t- the, you the smallest <laughs> wiener at the shop is what you yeah, – I was yeah. going to rephrase I what w- you told I me. I was the smallest wiener at the <laughs> shop. That's fucking great. In the men's room. I, yeah, I was the smallest wiener in the men's room. I was, this, I was the smallest <laughs> wiener in the wiener well. Dude, that – In the, the dick tornado. Dude, the biggest the – biggest, I do miss that job to a degree. It was really hot and it was really dirty and there's a lot of heavy lifting. It was murder on my body. You know what I mean? It's like All it's like being, those at a wiener shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hot, dirty, but hard on the body. When it was, <laughs> but when it was good, it was really good, much like a wiener. <laughs> but the biggest benefit of it was part of what it took to get hired at Biker Gyms is he was like anyone can make a hot dog. He's like, but. Biker gyms, like, you got to be able to tell a dick joke. Like, that was, like, part of the deal is, like, you had to be able to drop a dirty joke. You had to be able to be, like, a smart ass with people. You had to be able to bark at a giant line of people. You had to be a cut-up. And so much, so much of what I think I'm good at, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what the rest of the world would 
would say that I'm good at. But what I feel that I'm good at is not being a musician and it's not being a a singer per se, but I'm good at rapidly spouting off bullshit. <laughs> That's a performer. You, you know what I mean? But like the specific action of randomly spouting off bullshit and so much of that has been cultivated through service jobs, mm. you know, where – like at biker gyms, and I do this a lot at, at Fire on the Mountain too, is if you've got a big line of people, like I personally have a protocol. You know, I have like a script of probably like 20 things that I say to people and I just run them off. You know, I come up with a one-liner for as many potential scenarios as I can and then just rattle those off all day long, you know, and just combos of that. And like – Working as as much as biker gyms was like a like a hard job, and the money was kind of inconsistent. When it was good, it was good, but when it was inconsistent, it was just really laborious. And I wasn't very good at the equipment maintenance part, maintaining the wieners. Ma- the, I maintained the wieners uh, fine, the, okay. But yeah. I flipped a couple carts, like oh, shit. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I so I just. I damaged a lot of stuff when I worked there. You know what I mean? So I wasn't I wasn't meant to be a hot dog guy. But in the time that I did it, it just really cultivated the ability to just like fill in the gaps with bullshit on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. like being able to just like rattle off stupid shit to people and keep them engaged. Just like, hey, while we're in between songs, you know, cracking wise, whatever. So you went from wieners to starfish. Wieners to starfish. <laughs> now you're a starfish guy. Yeah, now I'm a star- I'm a big fan of wieners <laughs> and starfish. That's what- in fact, my favorite album was Chocolate Starfish in the Hot Dog Flavored Water, man. <laughs> Limp Biscuit. Mm. that's such a good album. So, um... Something that uh, I wanted I wanted to t- tell you about is I just this week I went to all three of the Ween shows at the Mission Ballroom. Have you been to the Mission Ballroom yet? Yeah, by the way, yeah, I saw. Um, gosh, I was also in a fog. Tame Impala. What did you think? They were really good. What did you think of the venue, though? I loved the venue. Yeah, love the venue. How was how was the sound and lights for the Tame Impala show? Better than most things I've been to. Yeah. It's like, man, it is just so well engineered. Mm. Like, even the parking structure is engineered really nicely, like in a really smart way. Like, it costs 30 bucks to park there. (laughs) But when you get in, you are pretty much out of the venue, in your car, and out the – and on your way home, like outside of the region of the venue, mm-hmm. like out of the complex within 10 minutes. So quick, yeah. Dude, it's super fast. So like even down to that, but they've just got it designed to like help people flow in it. Like you can't get lost anywhere. You right. know what I mean? If you if you walk one way, it's going to spit you out down the stairs eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the smoking section where it, you know, in a, in a good spot and they they have the big open seating plan where um where you know there's there's tons of room on the floor but if you don't feel like being on the floor and you want to be up in the bowl like you can go up in the bowl too like the yeah. the only pay like assigned seating is VIP that's it 
And but what I was most taken with was they've got that like black box design where you could do anything in that room. Like they've got riggings set up all over in the ceiling. Yeah. You know, the stage is is very malleable, you know, it, and the sound was amazing and just like like the 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 hardware that they had made it so that the sound and lighting techs could really do their best work. You know what I mean? Like I did not have any moments of having a bad time at all three of those shows. Like they were all great. Yeah. But we were talking about production stuff. And I was I was thinking about like you guys have started well, not started. You've been doing it since the name change, right? Since you became Love Stallion and like Tay joined the band. And tell me your bass player's name again. Sabrina. Sabrina. And since, since Sabrina joined the band, like you guys have been really focused on on the the, the production end of it, like how you want things to look with costumes and things, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to all three of these shows and – you were talking about going to see like we were talking earlier about like going to see Kiss on Mushrooms and like how it makes you like start breaking down all the elements of the show and like you look yeah. at it with a musician's mind and whatnot and get like super inspired by it. So this time at the shows, I became very acutely aware of the use of lighting to present the songs. Okay, Mm. like every one of their songs is essentially a figment of the imagination that they've just expanded upon, you know, some tiny little figment in their imagination, some tiny little idea that then they take and they go, they go, okay, we're going to just uh, expound upon, we're just going to extrapolate upon the universe in which this figment lives. They start to think about the surroundings of that, right? And whether or not they did that deliberately with their songwriting on the front end is, is, is another story. But this is what it looked like to me is the sound engineer really found a way to connect with the environment and the story that each song was trying to tell. Mm. And he was able to, like... So much of that show was awesome because the sound and light people were fans of the music. Mm-hmm. You know, every single song had a very deliberate, you know, and I think the technical terminology for that is it's literally called a scene. You know what I mean? Like if you program a light show, you have different scenes in the show, right? Mm. So they had these different scenes that were set up for each individual song. And each song, like whenever they did a like goofier um, or like country styled song that was more like simple chords, they did the lighting very traditional Nashville style. Whenever they did like a really like trippy proggy song, it was a lot of like slow moving lights and like colors moving out and little fig like it was designed yeah. deliberately for people who were tripping. You know what I mean? Whenever they played a song that was funkier or bluesier or more Prince or Parliament influenced, because they have a lot of songs like that, there's a lot of purples on stage, a lot of blues. It had this very like they would kind of adopt the 
the colors and textures of those shows, you know. They played Buckingham Green and there's just like all sorts of like pulsating green stuff over the stage. Whenever they would play a hard rock song like, you know, It's Going to Be a Long Night or uh, uh, Stroker Ace or or You Fucked Up or something like it, like any of their or My Own Bare Hands, any of the like really loud, heavy metal sounding stuff. They lit it very much in a traditional metal concert sort of way. Lots of strobes, lots of bright floods. So much strobes. So much strobe, right? <laughs> but then, then what I thought was really cool is anytime they played something that was like a deeper cut that is like a fan favorite, but also kind of shitty and weird or brown as they called it, their, their lighting engineer started using brown lights. Like Whoa. they would play songs, dude. I've never seen brown lights before, but they deliberately had brown lights. And then, very last show of the run, they played. Um, if, if you heard the song, the the Homo Rainbow song by Ween, maybe if I heard it. So they wrote it for. Do you remember the Chef Aid album from South Park? I don't know him super well. Do you know? Do you know South Park the show? Oh though, yeah, right? yeah, okay. for sure. So South Park, if you remember a long time ago, they had an episode where Chef was being sued by his former record company and they were trying to like basically bankrupt him. And there was like this dickhead record industry guy. He had like a jar of spooge. He was the guy who was like, I am above the law. That guy. Have you seen that one? No, but sounds great. So they, they did an album and they called it Chef Aid. And on uh-huh. and they in the episode, it's like all these rock stars are showing up to play the Chef Aid concert, right, to raise money for them. So they put out this album, and it was like, uh, God, who was on it? Um, Wyclef Jean was on it, and Ozzy Osbourne was on it, and uh, uh, Meatloaf, and uh, Elton John. And uh, so all these different artists, right? And the guys from South Park are big Ween fans. And they they do a lot of um, they do a lot of licensing work. Like people reach out to because they have such a diverse way of writing, mm. people reach out to them and ask them to do uh, ask them to uh, write songs for licensing. So they write, they take their own spin. they there's you know one famously rejected one that they did for Pizza Hut, the where the cheese go, that one. Like they've done stuff for like a Muppet movie, a bunch of things. So it's in like their deep catalog that that only really fans care about. Gotcha. So the guys from South Park asked them to write a song for this scene where Mr. Garrison is at the show and he is struggling with his sexuality. Like, this is when the character of Mr. Garrison was still in the closet. So he's, like, struggling with his sexuality. So they asked Mm – so the South Park guys asked Ween to write a song for that. And they wrote this song called The Homo Rainbow, right? And it's all about, like – like, it's there's many colors in the homo rainbow. Don't be afraid to let your colors shine. Like, it's supposed to be this, like, upbeat, like, happy song, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really for them this, you know, for them, it's just a silly, goofy song. But what it's become over the years of them playing it and dealing with, I'm sure, a fair amount of blowback from audiences, 
misinterpreting their intent, you know, t- taking it in a, in a more serious way than is meant. Um, they, it has kind of become something that they have presented as more of an anthem for the like, hey, it's okay to be whoever you are. Mm. Like that, that's their anthem. And so they did that as the very last song of the run. And the lighting guy just did this giant rainbow light show. Just like it's it's steadily yeah. built over time, just like and they have that giant disco ball at the mission ballroom. Yeah. And he just blasted the disco ball with all these rainbow lights and just lit up the whole crowd. And it was like the most like sweet, positive, just like happy, silly, high experiences that that I think that audience had ever had, man. It was just so like happy and innocent and childlike and like just like, oh, yeah, love's great. Love's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like something that had been probably misinterpreted in a lot of ways, something which had probably been misunderstood in a lot of ways, I feel like they closed with that song and it was the way they presented it seemingly very deliberately to me. The way they presented it is to me, they were saying, they were saying, let us show you the way that we truly feel about this subject. And in presenting it that way, I felt it was very, very clearly communicated. And so for years, I've been thinking about all these things we can do to step up our production value, mm-hmm. you know, building sets and having big projection shows and like thinking thinking about it like Guar or thinking about it like um, Neurosis or, or God, like Marilyn Manson, you know, and, or even like Motley Crue and, right. and bands like that, like trying to put a bunch of stuff on the stage. And I started thinking about, man, for the same amount of money and effort you would put into building all that stuff and putting up there and having to lug it around, you could easily hire an amazing front of house engineer and an amazing light guy and sit down with both of them and go, okay, this is the scene we want to create with this song. You know, taking yeah. the individual songs, this is the environment that we want to create with this song. Yeah. 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 That's we I mean we uh Yeah, I think we've wrestled with that too. Yeah. I think So it's, so what are you guys prioritizing right now in terms of your production? So we um f- friend of mine Aaron West Roberts, he he owns Full Color Productions. Okay. And uh he actually used to be in Lola Black. Oh, cool. And so he had, What's his name again? Aaron West Roberts. What does he play? He used to, I believe, play rhythm guitar. Okay. Maybe lead. But then he was in a band with actually Sabrina and our old bassist Arrow. That's how all those connections happened. Um, And Sabrina was my tech. You know, she'd help with setup and, you know, I'd do She was your tech? Really? Yeah, I'd do, like, my diva thing and hang out back. Because I had, like, wardrobe and hair and makeup and all my shit. Because you do it all, right? Yeah, and I, like, I can't, my clothes are purely cosmetic they're not functional so for me to like 
<laughs> me to go like be hauling an amp and setting shit up doesn't work, right? Right. But um, yeah, so when we first started our, uh, I think we were still Big Rock Radio at this point, our old bassist Arrow knew Aaron, who had bought all this gear for their high school band or something. And he had start just started a production company. So he's got the trusses, and we're like, oh, shit, we could hang, like, the sexy disco legs on those and put some lights on those, and he has all these lights. And he's just getting started, so we get the super buddy discount so we can use our right photos and stuff. So rather than – so we found two things. The sound engineer, yes, is important, but I feel like it seems like the small clubs get territorial about it. They get territorial, and here's another side of it. I have found that sometimes you want to trust the house engineer. Totally. Like when we did the Fillmore, did you guys bring your own front of house when you did the Fillmore? No, because so Seth Cross, our drummer, yeah, works for Live Nation. He's a sound guy. Works. He's like, we're using these guys. We don't need a guy. Right. But yeah, that all the. The bigger clubs have really good people, right? Typically, who know the room, right? And the board super fucking well. But you also you want someone who's gonna like knows the dynamics of your songs, right? Bump that solo a little bit and that sort of thing. Change the gain on the vocal at this point because yeah. it's gonna be a lower, you know. It, yeah. So, and we brought in sound guys sporadically to like Lost Lake or Hermans or, and it was just like. The it became almost not worth it to kind of fight with it and then learn the nuances and in time to really have a good show. Right. And I think that I think that's with the sound engineer thing. I think the only time it's worth it is when it is someone who spends a lot of time with you and mixes you a lot. A lot. Yeah. You know, like they've toured with you or they're huge fans of the music. Or they, you've had the conversation about like, you know, let's create these scenes and they, they have studied the material and they're ready to go. I think if it's just a friend of yours who is a good engineer, you're probably better off with the house engineer just because they understand the room. It might be worth having them there in case you show up and the house engineer is incompetent. Because that does happen. Well, and you only find out when it's too late. Yeah. We uh, had a, our, our tour manager, John Fate. Do you know John Fate? Uh, he was he was one of the engineers at Three Kings for a while. He tour managed the Bunny Gang and Jacoby, and he uh, tour managed us on one tour. But um, what was cool about having him around is if we went to a venue that was less professionally organized, you know, like, when we played in like the Czech Republic or Hungary or something like that, you know, we were playing small clubs and like, you know, in 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 developing areas, you know what I mean. And so it was nice to have him there to polish it up. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and that was very helpful. It was helpful to be able to have an English speaking front of house engineer when we were working on stuff. You know, so he could communicate with us more easily on stage. But, I mean, most of the time, the clubs you play, the the engineer speaks English anyway. But, but you know, it was, it was helpful to have him around. But, you know, if we played at the Fillmore or something like that again, 
I would definitely probably just trust who they've got there because they're mixing 200 shows a year or more, 300 shows a year. The sound was killer. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, the the places of like, un, I won't name names, right? But the small club's like, oh no, we've got the best sound guy tonight. And we had like, our intro track goes, does like, doesn't have it on. And right, it's right. just like, because he's staring at his phone. And you guys got you guys got a intro track that you use. Mm-hmm. That's pretty badass. We've yeah. got one that we had made years ago, and we're just like really bad about using it because so many times I try to reduce the number of asks of an engineer when we don't have our own mm. because it just creates too many things for them to keep track of. And it, I think it creates a greater, uh, a greater likelihood of error, a greater probability of error. Well, and, and that is true. On the, on the flip side of that, rather than them have half the band muted when we start our first song, <laughs> they fuck up the intro track only. And so what we did it intentionally is, um, I mean, it's very, I mean, most bands, you know, you just, that like big, beefy, like low D, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let yeah. that run for a bit because they were like, hey, man, it's running. Turn the fucking thing on and like we can all hear it in our ears. Right. And uh, and to alert the audience that like, okay, we're going to start the show now. Right. You know? Yeah. It may, I mean, that way, hopefully, they'll pull the lights down or something. But yeah, I guess all said and done, we've kind of, you know, we've even tried to have someone stand by the house guy, but they don't seem to like that too much. Yeah. But um, so anyway, with, with lights is we found bringing in Aaron's team, which, you know, I've got a tech for guitar setup and then a float and help everyone else and kind of get help get all the in So he's stuff. got a whole crew that comes down. Yeah, usually we have two, maybe three people, but they're bringing in the legs, they're hanging those, setting up. So basically they bring in these trusses too, and they do all custom lighting. So we, on the very beginning, three, four years ago, built out kind of a the scene, so to speak, but which colors do we want? What do we want to happen in these parts of the song? Flash. So you guys have already been experimenting with this. Yeah, so we did that, and we found... All right, so tell me about it. So how's it work for you? Long story short is once you kind of build that into each song, you can do it each time, right? Right. You just load the order, and then you're not fucking with the house guy. Right, right. So does he bring his own rig, or does he just plug it into whatever the house board is, or how does... Um, so it's not, uh, it's not necessarily sequenced exactly. It's just kind of more of a guide so that they can run it. Oh. So be like, hey, we're in the verse. I'm going to put in this thing. And then when it gets the pre, we'll do the whatever. What, what, now, what have you noticed, if any, the results have been from doing this? People love it. Yeah, they love it because let's say we play our val- you know our ballad Valentine and it's just this like really low light red wash versus like house lights just burning your eyes out again, right? Right. So it really does um you know, I guess I go back to my first vocal coach Dr. Scott, Dr. Scott Martin, he was like Broadway and all taught a lot of the rock and roll greats and Oh wow. But you were, we were talking earlier about um, just the showiness or the showmanship stuff. Right, right. And he said, do you ever leave a show and say, I can't wait to hear them again? No, you say, I can't wait to see them again. Right, 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 So right. 
from the beginning, that was always... That's really good. Yeah, from the beginning, it was like, are people going to... People don't even necessarily... Like, our hardcore fans still don't know the names of some of the songs. Right. They have, like, some lyric in their head, but they, like, they know... They can feel the song. They know, right. oh, the one that does this, and you guys do, right, the choreography or whatever that piece is. Right. So, yeah, that was always kind of the theme of the band, and just you add, add, add. But, um, yeah, as far as controlling controlling the production. Um, That's really good. The lighting is, I think, the biggest. Ad- I mean, shaking your butt and wearing your costume and having great lighting. Man, we fuck up all the time, but people don't. Remember that. Dude, I never imagined the costume would be so powerful. But if you dress up, people are like, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to see a human being. Right. I want to see a fucking escaped mental patient. I want to see a grown man or woman play dress up. That's what I want to see. You know, dude, and like now I'm at this point where like I can't back out of the jumpsuit thing. No, it's so I love jumpsuits. Dude, it's fu- <laughs> it's comfortable, it's fun and it is a article of clothing specifically designed for that context so you don't trash out any of your own stuff. Dude, when I first saw you at film where I walked in, I remember you guys were probably just a couple songs in. So I caught most of the set and I was just like, I like this guy. <laughs> I like this guy. Well, that that makes me happy to hear that, man. Because I mean, we're uh, uh, more on the Disney butt rock spectrum, but you guys write good songs, man. Thank you. And you guys put on, and you guys put on a great show, and you look good. Like I looked at the, like you, you said it yourself, and that's good, dude. That's gonna stick with me, like for a while now. Is like, is like they never say I can't wait to hear them again. You know, it's like I can't wait to see them again. And why else would you build in sight lines as some kind of construction concern? You know what I mean? And when people, like, some tall guy stands in front of you, it's like, fuck, dude, I can't even see the show. Right. You know? You want to see the show. It's like, I was only on the floor one night of that run, and I had a great time because the floor is good. Here's what the floor is good for. Floor is good for singing along, Playing air guitar and like dancing and having fun, right? Yeah. But if you want to see the show and you want to see the light show, you mm-hmm. want to be at a distance up in up in the bowl. You know, for the, like the best like gross concert experience, you want to be at a distance where you can see everything mm-hmm. that's going on. You know, you don't want your view to be blocked. In fact, the floor would be a million times better if somehow they developed it to where it had like grooves in it and you could see over tall people and see the stage and be on the floor at the <laughs> yeah, same yeah. time. You know what I mean? That's really smart. So you guys have just you guys have just built around that the whole time. Yeah, I mean it was definitely inspired by Prince and and Kiss and my my friend was in this uh like drag show musical vibe thing and the, cool. I was like what if we like sequence this whole thing and had it all very sc- scripted? Which has become is really more of you build the skeleton so you can be, you can't be spontaneous if you have no structure. You right, know, that's the definition. Right, but um, I think coming from my pop rock and from you know late '90s and into the 2000s was like, with all the new production technology, became oh we can finally sound exactly like the record. And you'd show up and you'd be like I didn't I didn't get anything except I heard the record. Right. So that's why it stuck out to me so big when he said that, because that was just like, was like, 
yeah, that's a very black and white, right? Clear contrast. So, yeah, that's been the goal since the beginning, and um, it's a good reframe. Yeah, it's a really good reframe, man. I like that. It's uh, it's always, it is a lot, right? You said, well, if you're playing, it's hard to go to shows. If you're also writing and set bringing a new show, new choreography, a new set design, it it's like where do you have time for anything else except to do right. what you do to pay the bills, right? So, um, so what's your what's your process right like for designing the production? Like what what process? Like let's say you're putting together a new show from scratch. Where do you start? What do you do? How do you do it? <laughs> That's hard because we we've, we've pretty much had the same. Well, we've been building on our current set because um, we cut our album last June. We're halfway done with this current album, and we're we're really starting to process through um, what's really going to be different and unique, and create the space right because it's a um, it's an escapist right performance um, without carrying a bunch of shit around. So you know, for like Red Rocks, they had these monstrous like PVC frames of hearts made right, but we can't set that up at Three Kings right. So um, right. we're wrestling with that because we're like, well, shoot, man, if we just play Fillmore and then Red Rocks and the next show's at Pepsi, this will be great. We'll, we'll be just- fine. <laughs> <laughs> we should build our show the way we want it to, 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 for the clubs that we want to play, man. And then it's like, you know, Red Rocks and the Fillmore, they aren't calling. But, <laughs> but man, Lost Lake wants to have you on or Lion's Lair wants to have you on or right. Three Kings wants to put something together. It's like... Okay, so how do we scale it down? <laughs> we get the mini, uh, the six-inch hearts. Yeah. <laughs> the little, like, the napkin drawing, the the stone hinges. Well, that, yeah, I was just going to say spinal yeah, tap. Yeah, 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 you can't bring that to Lion's Lair. Yeah. You can't barely bring your cock to Lion's Lair. Well, yeah, right? Well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. That's why I've had this, like, really recent, like, I'm really fired up about going really hard into lighting and audio production Mm. just because that is something you can more or less do everywhere. Doesn't require a huge amount of setup. Like if you, if you are only playing boards with their own lighting rigs and you get somebody who knows what they're doing, doing, or you get, a reasonable sized like lighting rig of your own and bring that around with you. You know, you can do you can do a lot you can do a lot by hiring two people over any of the other stuff that I've been trying to focus on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I you know, um when it comes to music and of course all musicians are broke and all but somehow on a Saturday night, you go to a concert, spend, you know, easy spend 100 bucks on drinks and the ticket. Right. But if you're going to go play your own show, you won't spend 100 bucks to have someone do your setup, take care of all your bullshit, um, yeah. all that sort of thing, so you can enjoy your big night out. Right, right. So that was the approach I took because, you know, I've been setting up my gear and fucking lugging shit, and I lugged the legs in my own car and, all you know, everything. And then it was like, this is this is ridiculous. I'm not enjoying my night. It's spread out. Um, so you just you just pay Aaron like a like like he's a multi-purpose crew guy, and then he's got like a couple helpers that come help him out. Yeah, depending on the show, so two or three people. Who knows? Depending on the size of the show, it could be two three hundred bucks. Or if you want to go, I mean, he produces shows with you know the sixteen by sixteen foot 
mirrors, which are or, uh, screens, which are all like put together and synced up, and they take a whole day to set up. Yeah. So yeah, it became. I think in that department, it sounds like you've got a lot of things going on. It was like, man, I need to do what I'm good at. See, and that's the thing is you only have so much time, and I get front. This is this is where I get frustrated. Is it's like I get all these huge ideas, and I think this is where a lot of entertainers and artists get get frustrated. And and it sounds like you kind of had the similar experience where it's like I have no shortage of ideas. I I can generate ideas all day long, but I don't have the funding available. I won't say resources because I think you always have the resources available. You just have to be resourceful enough to to mine them. Mm. But as far as money goes, cold hard cash. It's yeah. like it's like, yeah, if I'm resourceful enough, I can I can figure out and I can fudge some things and I can make this happen. But as far as things that require cold hard cash, which man makes a production move faster than anything else I can think of. Oh yeah. It's like we just have no access to it. You know, Patreon has been helpful to if, to us in that degree. You know, we don't have a huge budget, but just having the consistent budget has made it so that we're able to at least keep things in motion. We're at least able to shovel coals into the fire, you know, even <laughs> yeah. though even though they're like, you know, it's only it's probably not even a complete shovel full. It's like we're still able to get some forward momentum. Mm-hmm. And it's made it such a huge difference. So it's really cool. I because by the way I'm going to hit this guy up. Yeah, I'll give you his info. Yeah, please do. Um, you know that's like it's really cool that there's someone who is out there doing it who is like, hey, I really be enjoy being part of like the underground rock world. You know, I just want to you know like I want to get paid for my time to some degree. And he's not he's not one of these for hire. Uh, you know. Big time, uh, you know, rock stage manager, whatever you would call them, like like mm-hmm. production design guys who are just kind of out of our reach when we're just trying to put gas in the van or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. That's really cool that that exists because, man, it's it's hard to. Uh, yeah, man, I tried to I tried to get a uh, design guy in here not too long ago, an old friend of mine, and he was down to do it. But it's like he can't work for nothing. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't change my own oil. thing of oil is probably five bucks. Yeah. But I still pay 40 bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want the mess or the I want somebody who knows what they're doing and who has the facility to make a mess and put new oil in my car so it doesn't explode. Yeah. And uh, to think like you pay, you know, shoot, you can hire your buddy. You teach him your rig, pay him 50 bucks and a couple PBRs and... You get to, like, be a diva. Yeah. And so it's funny that people, like... I like that you prioritize being a diva. Oh, I do. (laughs) Yeah. So, and people will... um, It's funny, like, I I hear that sort of uh, paraphrasing, but people saying, calling me a diva sort of thing. I'm like, you don't understand what it's like to be a musician when Mm -hmm. you're putting on a high-production show. You literally do not have time to set up your... Right. Your thing. And yeah, it is partially designed to reinforce one's ego, but it's also wanting it to be good for the audience. You know, it's a service position. 
You know, I mentioned this a lot. It's like, I want to give the best service I possibly can. And if we're going out there and putting on a raggedy ass show, you know, if we're all bombed and nothing's working and we're out of tune and the lights are shit and the mm-hmm. sound is shit and our attitude is bad and, you know, like the staff is rude to the patrons. Like if those things are going on, yeah. you know, that's not fun for anybody. So I'm I'm a diva about that shit. You yeah, know what your, I mean? ban- your bandwidth gets burned up on yeah, the yeah. bullshit. And, I, you know, it sucks when you go to a show and people who know you best are like, man, the first three songs you had a big stick up your ass and then you loosened up. And I was like, well, the so-and-so guy fucked this shit up. Or, right, right, right. Um, I was running around and everyone's... Everyone... You, somebody's told you that, that you had a big stick up your ass? <laughs> yeah, it's just like... Uh, <laughs> Well, the half hour before the show, instead of like getting in the headspace and warming my vocals up, people are still wanting to know what time you play. Yeah, you de- know? De- de- yeah, de- <laughs> dealing with shit. No, I, I think that's really cool that you're very committed to. You're committed to the bit. You know, you're committed to you're committed to being a diva. You're committed to being a professional. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. You're, you're, yeah, it's it is a lifestyle, and I I think that's very cool, especially. In a time like we had to get over our discomfort with signing stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? Tits or? (laughs) Anything, really. (laughs) No, but I mean mostly like signing because coming up in like most of our background was punk rock, hardcore, metal, like like underground warehouse stuff. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so – in that world, it's kind of like you're touring around and playing, you know, a venues with a varying degree of, of shittiness and, you know, PAs with varying degrees of shittiness and crowds with varying degrees of <laughs> shittiness. And it's like, like, sometimes you set up the merch, sometimes you don't. Like, you know, right. it's like, ah, I'm not in the mood. Let's not even deal with it. Like, not prioritizing it at all. Or if you do set it up, not being around the table and like like thinking that signing stuff is weird and you know when we started playing bigger shows and we started going overseas we started to see how disrespectful that is to the people who are asking for it it's really Mm. disrespectful to fans to somehow feel you're above hanging around or signing stuff or you know having a conversation with them about their life and what they're into. Like people who don't prioritize that are like shooting themselves in the foot for one, but also being disrespectful to people who have shared their literal money and opportunity cost to be there in the same room and be entertained by them. You know, uh, I think the same thing goes for, if somebody comes up and offers you a compliment and you go, what are you talking about? That was terrible. That was garbage. That oh, was awful. God, that this sounded up. like it, you know. And I've I had to correct myself of that behavior. Same. You know. Did, has Tay ever dropped the uh the term van talk on you? Uh I haven't been aware of it. He, ha- he, he hasn't has. he hasn't dropped it on you. It, it, he might be far enough removed from his time with us to where he, that's just not in his vocabulary anymore. But that was like one of our, like that was one of our band sayings. Like anytime you caught yourself 
Right. Or you caught yourself throwing shade or or started bickering about some issue that you were having or started talking about, you know, the club is bullshit or, you know, mm. the la- all the gigs on this tour have been terrible. Like any throwing shade, it's like, it's like, no, 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 we'll have a discussion. We'll have a discussion in the van on the way to the next town or we'll – We'll talk about it later. That's van talk. Yeah. Like, and if somebody started doing that, one of the like little come to Jesus statements you would give would be like, you'd just make the joke and you'd go, this week on van talk or, you know, like, yep, van talk, van talk, yeah. van talk, you know. Yeah. I can't, yeah. People for, I mean, we forget. I get in that all the time, right? But imagine you go up to like Michael Starr, awesome show. He's like, oh man, I no, suck. My voice sucks. I'm like, what? Yeah, he'd be no like, "No way! I just heard you do a great show." Yeah, and then you walk away from the experience. You were like, "What was it like me getting him?" I don't know. <laughs> I think he was having a bad night. But I, I know I've done it. I mean, the band's done it. My, I've done it. Yeah, we've and uh, and it's just like, "Oh, I like your shirt." Oh, this old thing. It's yeah, that yeah, old yeah, yeah, shit, yeah, totally, you know? totally. And uh, yeah, girl. Well, we're all the worst at it. But um, I had a, I, I, I used to have this thing. I used to be such like a, like a. Sad, uh, like, like melancholy drunk every once in a while when we'd have a bad show, <laughs> and so like be all drunk and we'd have a bad show and it didn't go well. And and one of the things I would say a lot is I would be like, "Man, I should go back to college. <laughs> like, <laughs> I should I should go back to school. I should do something else with my life. That was terrible." Or I'd have like meltdowns on stage. I had a couple meltdowns on stage. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Like just like drunken like. Like, I yeah, I had um, one time I thought I was being really funny, but I was just being kind of obnoxious. And this guy who was kind of mentoring us and producing us for a minute called me out on it. And I was I was drunk, and I'm like drinking on stage, and and we're doing a song, and um, and somebody yelled Freebird, and I just went on this diatribe of how like lame it is to yell play Freebird at a show and yeah. and just started I went on a tirade to be funny and I like threw the beer out into the crowd and was just being a cocksucker and it didn't come off in the way I intended it. Yeah. It came off as just me being a dick. And so now when it happens, my go-to like kind of banter is just like hey man careful what you ask for Mm because we know that fucking song and we'll play it note for note and waste your time and everybody else's (laughs) so keep it up and you'll get what you you know yeah i've made it more more cheeky goofy silly and i don't drink so i'm not gonna become a snarling asshole on stage as as readily as maybe i used to yeah no it's uh you know those master classes with like all the celebrities so i started uh the Steve Martin comedy one like three years ago, and I still haven't finished it. Really? Uh, yeah. I got to check that out. <laughs> he is he is great. You know, like he's got his kooky, goofy self, but his sober teaching is so fucking good. And he talks about a lot. He'd have like the manager, and he'd be like, oh, man, I walk off. I thought the show flopped. And he's like, that was amazing. Right. And then he'd be like, oh, man, I killed it. And he'd be like, and it kind of flopped, you know. Yeah, your subjective experience is is, yeah. is your own, and, and it comes through all these filters that the audience and the other people watching it aren't aware of. 
Yeah. Do- so Dr. Scott, who's my voice coach, you know, my first show I spent with as it wasn't even Big Rock Radio. It was Aaron Hart with Creighton Huntley at the Walnut Room. Right. In in 15. And, uh, you know, I faced the drummer most of the time because I was nervous and I had my eyes closed if I was looking out. And um, oh, but that goes all the way to you're playing and you have a gear malfunction. Most people don't fucking know. Right. And if you he calls it break character, you're like. You're marshing everyone's mall. You're killing the energy and the connection of the show. Breaking kayfabe, man. It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like wrestling. If you yell out, wrestling's fake, it's like, fuck off, man. Yeah. We're all watching a show here. Porn isn't fake, though, right? Right. No, that's all really <laughs> happening in real time. That's how people have sex. <laughs> that's how I have sex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come. Yeah, just with, like, close-up. <laughs> <laughs> We all do it. Yeah, we all do it. That's how all people have sex. Yeah. But what's fucked up is people do end up thinking, like, young people end up thinking that that's the way all people have sex, and they have to, like, deprogram themselves in, like, a healthy relationship to understand, like, what real sex and real intimacy (laughs) is like. It's like, oh, porn sex is actually kind of painful and kind of, like, awkward and kind of, like, silly, like mm-hmm. real real sex isn't isn't like it is in it portrayed in porn at all. Yeah, not everyone gets an enema before they play. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone has a full bath and the yeah. whole thing. <sighs> but anyway, yeah, I guess the whole um no, the master classes thing. Yeah. Like that's I I'll check out the Steve Martin one. Um I really want to check out the Danny Elfman scoring for um uh film one. Mm. And I want to check out the Neil Gaiman uh, uh, storytelling one, because anyway, Ooh, you, yeah. you know, I was th- I was thinking about it and like that does sound really good though the Steve Martin one. But I was think of it, thinking of where I really got intrigued by that is you know we're working on the comic book and we're working on all these different things. But I started to think about how they're all tied in, and I started thinking about writing songs for the purpose of of building a scene and how expertly Danny Elfman creates scenes. So even if I'm not trying to make a score, I can make music like, I'm going to make a score. <laughs> even if I'm not like trying to score a score, um, even, you... if, yeah, even if I'm not scoring a film specifically. <laughs> there. Even if I'm not scoring on film, like in pornography. There we go, full circle. All right, close the loop. Anyway, even if I'm not scoring a film, like being able to apply his approach will certainly be valuable in creating entertaining shows that tell a story, that mm-hmm. paint a scene. Even if it's a non-sensical scene or it's a scene that's like just, you know, party porn, you know what I mean? It's still creating a scene of some sort. Right. And then I think about, you know, Neil Gaiman is a great storyteller, like being able to learn how to apply those elements to it and and beginning to think of the the production end of things in a more um, philosophical and conceptual, uh, you know, like um, we used to have at the school I went to, we had regular physics that math people were good at, but then there was like theoretical physics, right? Which is like just getting to or conceptual physics, you know, going in and just talking about like. Just like, what about this? And what causes this happen? What are the principles that make this happen? And like right. beginning to just think about more of the phenomenology 
of the universe, you know, I like the idea of applying that to creating an awesome show, you know, thinking about what is the phenomenology of an amazing concert experience. Yeah. I think the hardest part is watching videos of yourself because all you see are your mistakes or you're not matching what your feet think you're putting on on the show. Yeah. And then it like, um, yeah. And and I think that's uh, that's something I struggle with. I've got a ton of footage I'm supposed to watch, but I'm like I would cringe too much to watch it because you watch your own show. Meanwhile, everyone else had the greatest time and think it was awesome. But uh, it's such a craft that takes a lot of. I just think of it like watching tape. Like if you were on a football team, yeah, yeah, you know. I just think of it like watching tape, and I go. And I try to get my bandmates to do it, and they don't do it as much. But I watch it, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, what worked? What didn't work? And what usually bothers me is not watching the show. What makes me cringe is just the sound quality that you find out you broadcast <laughs> to the whole world on the internet. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, man, that sounded really a lot better when you were in the room than it did, like, like – from the board. Yeah, from well, from the board, yeah. yeah. And like, or not from the board, but like someone with their cell phone out filming yeah. the thing. You know, even if you've broadcast live performance has come a long way, but it's still not there. Oh, it's terrible. You know what I mean? Like, we live stream a lot of our shows, and they're usually, the live streams are usually pretty bad. <laughs> like, but I mean, people respond to them because they're like, oh, I see you guys are playing right on. Wish I was there. And they check in for a minute and it serves its purpose. And I mean, people people do enjoy watching the shows. You got to have it out there. Right. But that's more what makes me cringe than the performance itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, um, it's like watching amateur porn versus highly produced. Yeah. Or have you ever filmed yourself and watched yourself? Uh, because get ready for an even bigger disappointment. <laughs> See, I think it's better. Do I, I think really it's see? better. It's like something about this. I really connect with this film. I don't know what it is. It's like, it's like that's me up there. That's how I feel about it. I mean, I only watch me when I watch when I watch me. <laughs> Anytime I put on another porn, I put on the picture and picture screen, like, and I superimpose just a picture of me on top of it. And I film a lot of stock footage. <laughs> so it's like just video while I'm driving or like like I film myself while I'm on the computer or I just like leave my cell phone on filming when I'm hanging out playing with my son. And then I superimpose that over the porn star faces. Wow. Yeah, I do that. That would be hilarious. Just like <laughs> some like greasy, shiny guy just like <laughs> railing out this this girl and then his, his like face, he's like sucking on his teeth and like. <laughs> picking his nose and like rubbing his eyes sipping on white claw <laughs> sipping on a white claw <laughs> well uh hey man i this has been really nice um yeah man you know we've known each other from a distance for a long time i'm disappointed we haven't gotten the chance to work together you know we'll get a show together one of these days it just seems like we keep missing each other but uh man i really I really have enjoyed having you on and, and getting to know you in person. And I've gotten a ton of great ideas from our talk. I hope you've gotten a lot of great ideas oh, yeah. from your talk, too. And that, I mean, dude, I, th I think everybody should do this. 
sit down and just record conversations with people. And like I've learned more in the past year and a half sitting down having conversations with people I'm curious about than than any schooling I ever did. And uh, man, I really appreciate you coming down. I hope you had a good time. And uh, for, for first of all, uh, what do you got coming up? Where can people find you? You know what? Uh, what can people look out for? This is this is your section to plug whatever you want to plug. Right on. Well, yeah, man, this has been rad. Yeah, this has been great. Cool, man. And I've been drinking White Claw the whole time, so <laughs> I'm in heaven. They and give I'm me high. money every time I say it. <laughs> and I'm high. Yeah, high and drinking White Claw and in, in in the little in a little animation studio. There are worse things to do with your time, man. <laughs> high and not so dry. Mm-hmm. So we've got. So we're actually. Uh, I flew to L.A., so my bassist, Sabrina, moved to L.A., so she'll fly in, similar setup with you guys Oh, have. cool. So I just went out and needed a break, hung out with her in L.A., and uh, Crazy Connection ended up at the Whiskey, and this 80s cover band wants us to open for them. So we just booked, actually, December 16th oh, cool. at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Oh, cool. On the Sunset Strip. So Love Stallion goes to Hollywood. That's fun. You'll have to let me know what you think of it. Yeah. Because... The Whiskey A Go-Go is really cool. It's a really cool place, and it's super thrilling to see your name up on the marquee, and it's fun to play a stage where so many people have been, and just like like Hollywood is fun. I like the Sunset Strip. It's a, it's a cool place to go. That being said, I feel like the Whiskey A Go-Go is kind of a tourist trap for musicians. You know what I mean? They're like... Come, you know, come pay to play right. the world famous whiskey a go go, <laughs> and and you end up like doing it. Speaking of not throwing shade, right? But fan talk. I was going to call you fan talk. <laughs> hey, fan talk, fan <laughs> talk. Uh, but like the way they do things a lot there, just because of the way the industry is structured, right? Is it's showcases. So they'll put four, five, sometimes six bands on in a night. And then they have them slotted in a schedule so that all the uh, A&R people from the different labels and stuff like that, if they've got to see multiple bands in one night, they go, all right, I'm going to go see this band at the right. Viper Room at 8. I'm going to go see this band at the Whiskey at 9.30. Right. And so what a lot of, a lot of times what happens is each band brings their own crowd and nothing else. And they leave, right. Right. Like so we played – when we played the Whiskey – we had an awesome time. A bunch of people drove from out of town, like followed us from Denver and came to see us. Sick. And like, like we had a really, really good time. But like the band that played before us was like this all-girl pop act. And they had like all their stage set up and production and props right. and stuff. And industry people and their fans and whatnot. And everybody watched the set and then they fucked off. Right, And then we went up and it's like all the friends that followed us and the people that we knew in California. And then all of us fucked off and went somewhere completely different. Right. And like every act has their, everyone has their own green room, but you don't get that experience of like hanging out in the green room at Three Kings. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you're not connecting and networking with those other bands. It's almost like, it's almost like they're just like, Opening like like cattle shoots, right? You know what I mean. Just like, all right, send the next one through, just out to the stage. That being said, it's like super fun. 
Yeah, so uh, I don't remember what year it was. It was like 2007. I did a night like that at the Whiskey. I played, stepped in on bass. Oh, cool. Like nine day two or my friend did. Oh, way cool. Sleeping on floors of fans yeah. and like, you yeah. know, it's just like, everyone's still partying. It's 3 a.m. I'm going to lay down on my back in the middle of the fucking like super dated tiny house and sleep for 15 minutes and then drive to the next gig yep so we did that and we were of course shuffled through it was just like that this one thankfully and um, we have a warm connection to the band there's only two bands that night so we get a full 45 minute set oh cool and um but yeah it's kind of just to yeah just like we played hard rock cafe downtown denver hard rock cafe is not what it was. Right. I don't know if it ever was. Is what it, it fun was. to play Hard Rock Cafe? It was. Because I've been curious about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's, all, it's, it's interesting. Okay. It's very interesting because there's not like you don't get any real dim lights to your show. So they're washing you a lot of it. Um, we still brought our lights in the legs. It's a little tight space. And we had requested because we had a big crowd come. They kind of clear the tables out and like, nope, we have to, after we had booked, no, we have to keep this as a dining area. So we've got like, you know, an, an elderly couple, at least at the beginning of the show, sitting there eating their like fucking chicken tenders or something. And which is kind of a weird vibe. So what we had is. The, oh, yeah. But the two story with the balcony was like packed the whole time. We had a massive crowd standing just behind, like at the bar and behind the tables. But then there's, like, the old people sitting there yeah. eating at the same time. <laughs> they all eventually cleared out and everyone moved up and all that stuff. Um, it was cool because of, like, the two-story and the hard rock. So we, like, did a whole um, – this will be coming out. We're releasing a video series, too. Um, so they they don't even have a green room. Right. And I was like – we need a green room. Because you've got costume changes. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we um, so called around, found some, uh, like, a limo service that, you know, is like a minimum of an, I think we found the one that only, only one, uh, like a one-hour minimum. I think we pay, like, I pay, like, 125 bucks or 150 bucks. We finish our sound check. We go outside, get in the limo. And they drive us around, and, and you get ready. And in the we limo? got ready in the limo, like a like a short top limo, or was this like like a limo bus or a or a sprinter? Mm-hmm. Like it was like an eight seater. So so you were sitting down, getting ready. Just yeah, in the, that's hilarious. And, find, and so we were behind schedule, all sorts of stuff. But we had been marketing like Love Stein's playing the Hard Rock Cafe, like event <laughs> eventism, eventizing them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, like the Love Stein limo is going to pull up right at ten o'clock, and all. So like, and we got, dude, the whole thing is like a Gene Simmons moment. We get like bought all this poster board markers, and everyone's making signs and crowding around. People walk by, and people, are like, oh my god, Love Stein's coming! And so we like <laughs> literally. And my friend Chris Parente, he's a news anchor. Yeah. Um, we had him come out and like with our camera team, like, dude, oh, the Love Stein's about to show up, and. And so we like pull up in the limo and like the crowds. It's just like a classic like '80s rock star reenactment. <laughs> Dude, we've done. <laughs> it's we, hilarious. We've done it not to the love degree of. That's commitment, man. Because we've done that, but we we never took it that far. Like we had like <laughs> we played like we had a record release at Bender's many years ago, 
And this was during our shirtless bandana phase, which was so <laughs> dumb, dude. It was so dumb. We thought we were so funny and cool. Like I'm sure I'm sure Tay has told you stories about not that one. Yeah. Oh man. We had a period of time where we were just like no shirts, bandanas, flip-flops, and shorts. Like that was our like that was like our on-stage uniform as we were awesome. just like we were like, we don't care, we're a party band. Ah, like we're goofy and 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 all our songs are about boning and getting wasted. Ah, like just <laughs> so stupid. We did we did a show when we released Rock Your Box, we did a show at Bender's. And we like got a limo and pulled up and, you know, felt like we were the coolest thing in the world. And yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> not to the extreme that you guys did. That's really good. <laughs> I like that. But that's our landmark, you know, in Denver. We, we've been trying to kind of, you know, after Fillmore and then we had Red Rocks, but get these kind of like landmarks. They're spots. almost like resume builders. They're not. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I get it. So, th- I mean, thankfully with the Whiskey, Fast Times is the 80s cover band. They're like, pr- they, so as Steel Panther has for years had the Roxy They're residency. called Fast Times? Yeah. That is such a good band name for an <laughs> 80s cover band. <laughs> yeah. Do they do any Boingo? Uh, I don't know. I, I mostly heard like the rock and roll hits, like the- the Cars and shit like the that. The ass rock stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the well, ass rock stuff. Yeah, like the bassist is Nikki Six, and you know oh, wow. that, that sort of thing. Right, right, right. Um, but uh, so while Steel Panther had the Roxy residency, these guys have had the Whiskey residency on Monday nights for oh. for, for, for quite some time, and they brought a fucking crowd. I'm sure they did. And they're like, even like that band Van Talk. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> the yeah. band before us they didn't really blah, blah, didn't match or didn't bring like a, the the right crowd, but you guys look fucking rad. So right, right. Um, the cool thing is Sabrina is like super hooked into the open jam at Viper Room, which is across the street that starts at That's 10. That's great. So we play ninety nine forty five. The whole crowd's gonna come over and support, and you know we've you know so we're yeah of course we we um, but it sounds like you guys are actually going in and doing it smart like you guys are going <laughs> to I hope so dude i'm excited to hear how this turns out for you man yeah. like that's you guys are actually going out there and doing it smart like we did it <laughs> we did it like with like stars in our eyes like some wide-eyed coot like looking at the rocky mountains going there's gold in them dar hills <laughs> like like we thought we were going to go out there and it was going to be like Slash was gonna see us playing, and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 Mr. Big was gonna come out with his pony nub and cigar lit, <laughs> and be like, "Why don't you guys come back to my place and uh, we'll shoot some pinball with Slash here?" And uh, and I have three beautiful daughters, and they just can't wait to meet you. And we'll uh, eat lots of pop tarts and smoke lots of weed, and I've got tons of free beer, and it'll be great. And we'll sign a recording contract. Like, yeah, we, we went out there thinking like, like, dude. Some some industry reps gonna see us and they're gonna be like, oh, I can't believe this band is real. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, we're just we're such like scene outsiders, man. They're gonna they're gonna grab us right up, never. And then like right by the pussy, yeah, <laughs> right by the pussy. Well, hey man, uh, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? Um, Facebook.com slash Love Stallion. And Instagram.com slash Lovestallion. And we're actually headlining uh, Walnut February 1st. I'll talk to you offline, see if you guys want to jump in on Oh, that. cool. What What's the date again? Uh, Feb, Feb, February 1st, 2020. Okay. At the Walnut Room. Okay. I got to check I gotta check on another thing, but let me, let me 
let me pencil it in and see if we can make it happen. Cool. I'm waiting on one other thing to come through. We Hangman's Hymnal asked us to do their um, their album release. They oh, just nice. they're, they're putting out their first vinyl in February, and like like I'm pretty excited for those. Have you seen cool. those guys? Great band. You check mm. them out. They're good. They're like like it's almost like. Tom Waits ejaculated them into the world. They're great. What, what, what are their names again? They're called Hangman's Hymnal. Hangman's yeah. Hymnal. If, if theirs ends up going in February, we'll probably do that. But I would, I would love to come do something at Walnut with you guys. And I love Walnut Room. So Yeah. yeah. If we, not, we'll do uh, maybe – I hope we get our record out by late summer or fall. Cool. We should have uh, – Yeah, we should do something. Out with us. I would love it. Um, so – Real quick, I want to give a shout-out to one of my lifelong best friends, Marshall O'Connor, Logan's brother. Dude, we had the conversation about mentioning this before the show, and then I completely forgot to do it. So I didn't deliberately disregard your advice. I just got caught up in the conversation and got baked and got lost in Aaron's eyes and forgot to to warn him ahead of time. So, uh, But I will try and do it on the next one. So uh, what I'm referencing is... On every episode, we ask the guest to pick a band that they think deserves a little extra love to be our one for the homies feature for the week. So every week, basically, we uh, after in post-production, we have uh, whoever's producing the episode, whether it's Gordo or, or Gene Skibbins in Chicago, we have them um, – we have them add in the song in post-production so that it can play when people are deciding what podcast to listen to next. So think of a band that you think deserves a little extra love. It can be someone that you're getting ready to play with soon. It can be something that you want to promote of your own. It can be a friend of yours that you think has got some really cool stuff coming out. It can be anybody. And the reason I gave the shout-out to Marshall is he sent me a text right before we got started that was like, hey, I was listening to the last episode, and I think you should probably start letting the guests know about the one for the homie things at the beginning of the show instead of putting them on the spot at the very end. <laughs> gotcha. And I went, oh, yeah, that's a really great idea. And then I completely forgot about it. So so I would give the shout-out to my buddy Eric Toledo. He's in Athens, Georgia. Okay. And the band's called Quiet Hounds. Quiet Hounds. Okay. Do you have a song in mind that you really like? <sighs> Man, they just cut a new record, but um, – Gosh, I would say Emperors. Okay, by cool. Quiet Hounds was on their last EP. Okay, they just cut a new record. I haven't yet. I have to say, I haven't gotten into it yet. Right, so just on time. Insane, like, um, how to describe it? If you like Andrew Bird and kind of like a man, I'm probably pretty high too to describe <laughs> this. But it's such like this uh, unique indie rock sound incredible vocal layers and synth and uh, a touch folky, a touch, um, but also kind of a raw rock indie feel. Quiet hounds? Quiet hounds. And they wear um, they wear like uh, hound masks. Do they really? Yeah. Quiet hounds. Okay. At least they used to. I think it was, um, maybe I'm not supposed to, I'll have to check with Eric, but they originally started the band because they had like a record label dispute and they couldn't disclose they couldn't their perform. identities. <laughs> so they so they wore hound masks, and I know they play shows without them, but I know they still do stuff with them. That's really funny. All right, so one for the homies shout out this week is dedicated to Quiet Hounds. This is Emperor. Uh, thank you very much to my guest Aaron Hart from Love Stallion for coming in and talking with me. 
been really awesome to sit down and talk with you, man. And, and And thanks for drinking a couple White Claws and smoking a bowl with me. That's great. That's how dudes are supposed to hang out. Fucking hard seltzer and just just a little bit of marijuana. Not too much. I mean, we're not crazy. And little gummy edibles. Thanks also to our sponsor, Granny's Edibles. They're not available in stores, so good luck. <laughs> anyway, this has been episode 78 of the motherfucking podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Be sure to check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash mfruckus. Thank you so much, guys. I'm Aaron. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap.
The motherfucking podcast is recorded at the Nug Nation Studios in Denver, Colorado, and hosted by Aaron Howell, Tony Lee, Logan O'Connor, and occasionally even Ty Blosser of the international power rock combo, Motherfucking Ruckus. Our producer in the studio is Gordon Ledfoot. Our producers in Chicago are Gene Skibbins and Adam Zielinski. All music except homie shoutouts and featured artists is written and performed by MF Ruckus and comes from the album The Front Lines of Good Times, Volume 1, coming this fall on Rodeo Star Records. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, if you find this podcast valuable or entertaining and you wish to support MF Ruckus further, you can rate, review, share, subscribe, follow us on any of our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Spotify. If you really want to help us do what we do, you can go to patreon.com slash mfruckus and become a patron at any level. Our patrons get access to exclusive content, early releases, guest list spots, even VIP parties with beer and food, all in exchange for a small monthly contribution. It really does make a difference and allows us to do this podcast, make records, create videos, go on tour, fly Tony back and forth, and all the other stuff we love to do for you guys. Patreon.com slash MFRuckus. Check it out. Thanks again, guys. You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at MutinyInfoCafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. 